Ciao. Ciao. Jalo Chow Chow Podcast has returned. What have I done to you? What do you want from me? We want you to listen. We want you to subscribe. And we want you to join our Facebook group. Do you know how to do those things? I don't know. I don't know anything. Well then, it seems we have no choice. <laughs> Ciao, ciao, everybody, and welcome to Volume 2, Episode 17 of the Jalo Chow Chow Podcast. I'm your host, Chris, and I run a little website called thejalloscore.com, and with me today is my good friend Al, all the way from Italy. How are you, sir? I'm pretty good. How are you, Chris? I'm doing great. And uh, unfortunately, our good friend Matt Wall could not be with us today, uh, as... We have mentioned in the past, he is very busy out there in La La Land doing all of the showbiz things that people do in order to do showbiz things. Um, so he is very busy. We are trying to coordinate our schedules, but hasn't happened yet. So um, cross your fingers, everybody, that we can make this work. Um, and hopefully we will have Matt for our next episode, which incidentally will be in 2023. This is our last episode for the year. Until then, please uh, don't hesitate to go to IHateMattWall.com and check out all the stuff that he's working on and uh, support him and his music and his writing and his uh, movie making and everything else. Um, so uh, today we are going to talk about the film from 1969 called Murder by Music. It is a giallo by Spanish director Julio. How would you say his last name, Al? For Spanish, I'm not sure. I yeah, I maybe know. maybe books. I don't know. It it doesn't really look like a Spanish type name. It doesn't. Um. So I'm not sure. I I would just guess Julio books, unless I heard something else. Okay, and I did notice when the, when the credits roll that it says his name is Julio books Garcia. So. Um, yeah, I saw that too, but I didn't see the Garcia part on his IMDb page or anywhere right. else that I looked him up. So who knows? Yeah. And, you know, we've talked about this before. Um, there's a tendency in 
in these films to add like an Anglo-Saxon last name to some of these directors to, I guess, maybe get a wider audience. And in this case, if they actually added Garcia to his name and it was false, I'm not sure what the intention was because Garcia does not sound like an Anglo-Saxon name. So, Well, neither um, does Julio. Yeah, that's true, yeah. too. Exactly. I mean, if his name was Jules Books or something, okay, <laughs> maybe. Yes. but Julian Buchanan. It, you know. it, ooh, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> you can't get any whiter than Julian Buchanan. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but uh, I digress. Anyway, uh, Murder by Music is the film we're going to talk about today. And uh, I really, uh, it's, I, I'm excited to talk about it because it's one of my favorites. Let's do another one of our new segments called What Are We Watching? And uh, this time I'll go first because you went first last time. Since the last time we talked, I had an itch to watch the... uh, Well, let me backtrack. I had an itch to go back and watch the return of Twin Peaks that came out in, I want to say 2014 or 15, something like that. No. Uh, it might've been 2017. I think that's what it was. So Showtime brought back Twin Peaks for a third season. It was 16 episodes. David Lynch directed every single one of them. Um, and they were an hour long a piece and they were great. And I watched them as they came out and I haven't watched them since, but I have copies of each one. So I'm like, you know what? I want to go back and watch these, but I really should do it justice by going through the original ones from 89 and 90 and uh, watching the originals. So I couldn't find other than paying for them per episode. I couldn't find a service that had um, twin peaks other than paramount, uh, which I don't have a subscription to. So paramount plus had (laughs) this promo where you could get a free week um, and if as long as you canceled before the renewal date, you wouldn't be charged for anything. So for a week, all I did was try to watch every Twin Peaks episode um, before the deadline came. And if you know the show, the first season is only about seven episodes and it's, every episode is great. And the second season is like double digit episodes. And there is a lot of filler. Um, the main story of who killed Laura Palmer is, you know, it it continues, but it takes a break in the middle and there's all these kind of side stories and it becomes more like a soap opera. And um, so because I was up against the clock and wanted to make sure that I got all of my watching in before I actually had to pay for the channel, um, (laughs) I skipped through maybe three or four or five episodes in the middle. So if you're familiar with the show at all, uh, in the second season, the killer is actually revealed and there's some closure to that. But then there are some outside forces that kind of influence the whole mythos of Twin Peaks 
that they are still investigating. And so for the last three or four episodes of the series, they kind of come back to that. And the last episode of the series from the 90s ends in a cliffhanger. And what's really interesting about the show is, I don't know if they planned this or if it's just a coincidence, but in one of the dream sequences, the Laura Palmer character says something like, I'll see you again in 25 years. And 25 years later, they brought the series back. Um, I don't know, like I said, if they had planned that all along or not. But um, so I, huh. I, I really, um, I, I always find something new to notice in that show every time I watch it. And um, it's just great. It's, it's one of those shows that... Uh, I can go back and rewatch over and over and over again. Like we were talking about last week with the wire and the Sopranos and breaking bad. Um, that mm-hmm. one's on my list. So um, I'm now caught up with seasons one and two. Um, and I'm going to start watching the, the, the return um, when I have some, some free time. And, um, but that's it. Uh, I haven't really been watching anything else. Like I said, uh, playing a lot of video games which is, I don't know if that's worse or better, but. Well, I mean, it's more interactive, but a it's a bit. little more addicting too. Yeah. Uh, let's, I haven't watched Twin Peaks. I kind of, I think around the time it came out, I was kind of contrarian to anything people were telling me was cool. <laughs> <laughs> so I, yes. my friends, like, uh, I would put X-Files in that pile, too. I mean, I've seen right. the odd episode here or there, but just because so many people went goo-goo geeky over the X-Files, I just kind of, right. no, I don't care. And um, I think I kind of had that same feeling towards Twin Peaks when it came out. And then later, Fire Walk With Me comes out and everybody gets excited again. No, I don't care. And I remember when The Return was coming out, I thought it's been a long time. How didn't they already? Cause I'd heard enough just through cultural osmosis that Laura Palmer's killer was identified or they thought they had him or you know, So what's left to talk about? Yeah. But, um, that's probably on my list of things I'll get to eventually. Once I've beaten everything else to death, like a dead horse. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I didn't uh, watch Twin Peaks when it was out either, and probably for the same reason, because it was like kind of a mini cultural phenomenon for a little while. And then yeah. when it got weird, I think they lost a lot of interest um, when it started to get like derivative, I guess, or maybe derivative isn't the right word, but it just started to get um, watered down, I guess, maybe is the right word. And they started doing subplots within subplots and David Lynch wasn't a part of the project as much anymore. Now Firewalk with me is the prequel to the series. So okay. it's not advisable to watch Firewalk with me until you've watched seasons one and two. Okay. And uh, that movie is one of the scariest movies I've seen in a long time. It's just, it's creepy, it's odd, it's off-putting, it's unsettling. Every word you can think of for uncomfortable is 
what that movie is. It's so well done. It's so great. I love it. It's one of my favorite well, movies. That's kind of David Lynch in a nutshell, too. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and I think that, you know, he had to kind of dial down the weirdness for a, a regular public network television show. Mm-hmm. Um, although Twin Peaks does have its weird moments for sure. Yeah. Um, but Firewalk with me, it got an R rating, and I think Lynch got to do what he wanted to do. But um, the return that was on Showtime a few years ago is very much like Firewalk with me. It's very weird. It's very Mulholland Drive, if you've ever seen that film. It's very Lost yeah. Highway, if you've ever seen that film. And um, you know, it's you know, it's it's actually a little bit frustrating if you want to watch a third season of the show that you kind of fell in love with back in the nineties, because it's not like that at all. The characters are still in on the show. Um, They're Mm -hmm. older, um, but they spin off, you know, the main story is basically about this kind of metaphysical uh, environment that the main character gets trapped in at the end of the last show from the nineties. And now, 25 years later, it's um, let's see what happens to him and you know, all the stuff that happens in the return is all related to that. There's no real kind of major spinoffs like they did with the second season, but uh, it's very weird and um, I liked it. But again, I have to go back. This will be my second viewing of it since it came out. And um, you know, there's a lot of stuff I forget that happened. So, yeah. So the original run in the 90s, that was on the major network broadcast channel somewhere? Yeah, I can't remember which one. It might have been ABC or NBC. It was one of those two. Yeah, there's a world of difference between broadcast TV and making an R-rated film and then making something for one of the premium uh, movie channels. Right. Well, especially if you add 25 years worth of time passing. Yeah. Between the film and, you know. Like, what if they did a 25 years later return to Deadwood and it was part of the NBC Friday night lineup? (laughs) 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 There'd be some whiplash among the audience for that. Do the opposite. Yep. Right. Yeah. Do it backwards and put in commercial breaks every 20 minutes or 10 or however it is now. Uh, One of the shows, you know, I was talking about shows that people tell me I should watch because they're so cool and I resist them. Uh, One of the more recent ones of those for me has been Stranger Things. Yeah. I have not watched one minute of Stranger Things (laughs) and the more people clamor how great it is on social media and the more I don't care. I, you know, the eighties, I remember the eighties. I was there and you know, so you don't need to see it again. Yeah. Um, one time I did try to get on a bandwagon was with Lost. That okay. had come out, and uh, I heard about how mysterious and weird, and oh, what's going on? Polar bears on a tropical island? What the <laughs> hell? You know? Oh, let me check this out. And I got really into it for a while. And have have you watched Lost? No, never watched it. Okay, they they do this. Well, they did this thing where they would show uh, flashbacks so that you would see the life of these airplane crash survivors tr- stuck on this island. Right. 
they'd give you a flashback so that you would see what their lives were like before they ended up there. And sometimes there's these interesting little connections between them and other survivors that you never would have guessed. And what they would find these uh, little weird laboratories and hatches and things buried in the island or in a mountain and little uh, scientific stations that they couldn't figure out what they were for. I was totally into it. And then I started getting the creeping feeling that the people making the show don't have any idea how they're going to tie all this together <laughs> or make it make sense. <laughs> and it seems like they're just stringing us along. And instead of answering any questions, they just give you more questions to ask. Right. And then they started, instead of just the flashbacks, they started giving you flash forwards to things in the future. Oh. That was just, that's when I gave up. I threw my hands up. And, nah. <laughs> and from what I've heard, the way that Lost ended, I I didn't really miss much. And I kind of saved myself some disappointment. Yeah, yeah. Me. I remember people saying, you know, hey, I don't think they know what they're, you know, where they're going with this. Yeah. Um. But I, you know, I, I, I'll be honest because I kind of probably resolved to the fact that I was never going to watch it. I watched the last, I don't know, three minutes of it mm -hmm. and, um, you know, I think I, what I got out of it was they are, they've all been dead the whole time or something like that. I think, um, right. which is kind of a cop out, you know, <laughs> Yeah. but what are you going to do? Well, and you know, when you mentioned Stranger Things, um, Stranger Things is kind of a victim of its own popularity because the first season I thought was spectacular. Um, and even the second season was good, but the third started to trail off and then they did the fourth season and I've watched all of it because um, my son likes to watch it too. And we watched the fourth season and it's 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 too much like there's if you watch the fourth season the episodes are sometimes as long as a feature film wow and you know i i remember watching maybe seven episodes of season 4 and getting to the end of the seventh seat seventh episode of that season and saying man this was like a a not not necessarily a chore, but a, you know, a marathon, you know, a Herculean effort as it were to watch mm -hmm. this thing. Oh, but it's not over yet. There's two more episodes that finish the fourth season that they have delayed because they want people to, you know, I guess they just want to tease people a little bit and have that make them wait a little longer. And then mm -hmm. the last two episodes to come out for season four, eight and nine, I think the mm -hmm. first one was an hour and, um, like 40 minutes and the last episode was like over two hours long and I mean I appreciate the fact that they don't want to limit their time they want to mm -hmm. tell the story the way they want to tell it without leaving anything out but you're asking a lot from people to right. to, to sit and watch that much and it's really not like you're watching you know this epic story that, you know, um, Scorsese might've written or something like that. It's just about a bunch of kids and some demons and they go and they battle, 
you know, and it's like Dungeons and Dragons meets video games meets, you know, you know, so, so I feel kind of odd about Stranger Things and, and where it is right now. And if they, if they stopped with season one and I would go back and just watch that one again. And uh, that's, that one was great. It was really well done. So what about you? What are you, anything good you've been watching movies or films? Well, you know, shows? we talked about the, the video archives podcast that Tarantino does with Roger Avery. Yeah. Ding dong me. I listen to these podcasts and I look at the titles of the movies are going to be talking about. And I think, Eh, I never heard of this. I never heard of that. Isn't that kind of schlocky garbage from way back? Anyway, I'll listen to it just because I like to listen to people talk about movies. A surprise. Right. And there were a couple that I decided, hey, I'm going to see if I can find that. So I did a couple. Uh, one of which I obviously had seen before. And I watched again because you mentioned it, Dressed to Kill. Yeah. By De Palma. Yeah. And I told you about, um, well, no, Angie Dickinson in the shower. That's actually a body double. Yes. Okay. The close-ups in that are a body double. Right. Right. And that is kind of like the inside or the behind the scenes joke about the film body double. Cause that ends with him shooting a shower scene. And then right when it's time for the, the nudity to start, the, the director yells cut and the actress steps out. Somebody else steps in and I'd read that that was him in response to people being confused about Angie Dickinson's shower scene in Dress to Kill. So I thought, oh, well, you know, uh, Chris has mentioned it and now the Video Archives podcast is talking about it. I have it. Let me just put it on. I'll watch it. And it's not completely a body double because it, when you're seeing her through the glass door of the shower, yeah, like full body, that's definitely her. Right. But those little insert shots of the close-ups of, you know, where the hands are wandering and stuff like that. Yes. I think those are doubles. But, right. Um, that came up because I was telling you about uh, <laughs> pretty maids all in a row. Yes, because so, Angie is not a body double in that one it's it's not possible because it's a it's a full shot and you you don't see as much as you think of but okay you don't see as much of her as you think you see of her in those close-up shots at the beginning of dress to kill yeah but it's it's definitely her complete from head to toe uh so i watched that again and Thanks to you, I can't watch most movies without having a little Jolly scorecard in my head. So I was kind of <laughs> checking off, you know, every time something would happen, like you know, oh, the black gloves, ding, <laughs> the um, the hidden identity, the the cross dressing. I think is that, is that one of the Jolly score things? No, actually, there's no cross dressing element. Okay. Okay, well, uh, and then the, uh, the the psychiatry, the straight razor, the um, what else? The uh, the amateur detective, things like that. Yeah. So it's pretty clear to me that De Palma watched a few uh, Jolly back in the day. 
I always thought of him kind of as a Hitchcock ripoff guy. Right. But I think he rips off from all sorts of people. I think he was like a proto Tarantino. Yeah, right. <laughs> and Tarantino has said that I think he said that out of the uh, the seventies new Hollywood directors, De Palma is his favorite, and I believe it, even if he didn't say it. But uh, yeah, I think films- I think I've heard him say that too. I think he's he's said that. Um, I mean, when you, I don't know why this happens, but I don't know if you've noticed, but there seems to be. In, on the internet, when they when they really don't have much to write articles about, they just bring back stuff that's been out for a long time. Like Tarantino, you know, reveals his top ten favorite movies, right? And uh-huh. you know, he's revealed his top ten favorite movies like a million times. And I don't know why this is news, <laughs> but I guess you know we have such a short attention span anymore that we forgot what they were. And you know, I know that Heath likes Jaws. He thinks Jaws is one of the best films, and you know, um, right, uh, Good, Bad, and the Ugly. I think is one of his favorites. Um, but he usually mentions either Carrie, or Body Double, or Dress to Kill as one of his other favorites because he's a big De Palma fan. And if you listen to the podcast where he was talking about Dress to Kill with uh, Eli Roth. Eli Roth talks about how he never wanted to be Spielberg. He wanted to be De Palma. So, um, Hmm. you know, and like you said, it makes sense that Tarantino would uh, model De Palma because if De Palma is, you know, taking his uh, lead from other people that have gone before him, then, you know, Tarantino is doing it you know, exponentially more. He's, he's, he's drawing attention to the fact that these are not original ideas or concepts. Whereas like De Palma, I don't think he explicitly wanted people to think that he was, you know, um, recreating Hitchcock's stuff or the Italian film director stuff. I think, you know, he just mm-hmm. wanted to do his thing and, and, and not necessarily uh, invent a new kind of, um, signature, but uh, Tarantino for sure. You know, you can tell that he says, "Okay, I'm going to take some elements from Western, from Samurai, uh, from black exploitation, and put it all together in, in one film where I kind of, you know, blur the the lines of all these genres and make something, you know, that people consider to be a Tarantino film. You know, mm-hmm. undeniably, it's it's specifically Quentin Tarantino, but you know, you know where he's getting his influences from. So, well, I think he's he readily admits to genres and subgenres that influence him. But I think there are times when he's not exactly upfront about which specific movies he gets inspiration from. Right. For example, when Hateful 8 came out, People talked about, oh, well, this is like his uh, Spaghetti Western. And they even said that about uh, Django. And he would correct them and say, no, it's a Spaghetti Southern. (laughs) (laughs) But um, The Hateful Eight is, just as a a thumbnail sketch, it's a cabin out in the middle of the the freezing, cold, snow-piled mountain or forest or whatever combination 
and you have somebody who is transporting a criminal and they find themselves in this cabin with a bunch of other people that they don't really know. Nobody knows who to trust and everybody has an angle that nobody else sees. Right? Right. To me, that came almost completely from a film called Cutthroats 9. Okay. Which was a spaghetti western. And yeah, he'll admit, oh yeah, I was inspired by spaghetti westerns. And then he'll kind of, you know, he'll lift Mordecone's soundtrack music from different things and drop it in there. Like he's admitting it. See, this is where I got it from. This is, I'm paying it. This is an homage. But I don't think I've ever read or heard him once say the words Cutthroats 9. Yeah, right. And it's. Cutthroats 9 isn't, I mean, that's not the entire film, but it's kind of like City of Fire. There's like a, a an act towards the end of that film that became the entirety of Reservoir Dogs. And okay. it's, to me, Cutthroats 9 is the City of Fire of the Hateful Eight. And even the fact that they have numbers in the titles. Yeah, yeah, right. It's like, dude, exactly. why don't you... With De Palma, he did body double, and there's a scene where uh, the the protagonist is set up in this apartment or in this house in the Hollywood Hills, and the guy that lets him stay there shows him a telescope and points to another house across the way where some pretty young thing lives and dude she changes her clothes and she strips and she plays with herself with the curtains wide open and you cannot help but remember rear window when you're saying it right so i think de palma in a way it's not so much that he was admitting or trying to obfuscate his influences as that they were so obvious that he almost doesn't even have to say it um Mm. Yeah, but I think a lot of his Jalo stuff, like I think in when was uh, Dress to Kill eighty one or eighty somewhere? Yes, there? I think it was eighty. Yeah, I think at that time, people who were already established directors like him would have had access to movies from all over the world, either yes. as receiving reels of them here in America or just the fact that I'm a a rich movie director and I go to Europe a lot. I go to Cannes. I go to the Berlin film festival, the Venice film festival. They're probably exposed to a lot more foreign films than the average American was in the seventies and even the eighties. And I think when they borrowed or paid homage to Jolly, I think there was some part of their mind that expected Nobody in America is ever going to see this shit I just ripped off. Yeah, <laughs> you yeah, know right. what I mean? Right. And I I get the distinct feeling that when Tarantino put out Reservoir Dogs, whether he was trying to hide it or not, whatever his intentions were, I'm pretty sure in, what, 1992 that came out? Yeah. I bet he was thinking there's a very slim, slim chance that anybody is ever going to connect this to City of Fire, a Hong Kong yeah. cop drama that right. most people outside of Asia will never hear of. Yeah, and- no, absolutely. Absolutely. One of the things that you mentioned um, 
in that you went through the Jalo score or you, you thought about the Jalo score when you were watching Dress to Kill. And I did too. And I'm not sure what it was about the way I was feeling at the time, but I didn't actually get out my scorecard and, and do it. But that may be, it's, it's quite possible that that film will score higher um, than any other non-Italian, non-1970 to 75 giallo um, that, you know, that I've, that I've watched. And when I redid the website, I took off a few of the um, films that I scored and reviewed that weren't giallo films um, mm-hmm. primarily because I, you know, I put them on the, on the website back originally because uh, they coincided with an episode that we were doing for the podcast. And I wanted to make sure that uh, the website and the podcast were up, you know, were, were agreeing with each other. But um, when I redid the site, I took anything that was not like you know, an actual either proto or, post or regular golden age shallow off the list. Um, I think that uh, dress to kill definitely deserves some space on my website, probably more so than pieces more so than frenzy Hitchcock's frenzy. I think we, we, we covered happy birthday to me. We covered mm-hmm. um, some film from the fifties called the bat with Vincent price. Um I think Dress to Kill deserves to be on the website before any of those. Um, but I, I will I will go to my grave saying my favorite non-Italian giallo is Pieces, for sure. Um, that film is just so much fun. Uh, it's so trashy. It's so violent. It's so stupid. It's so, <laughs> it's so everything. It's just a party. Every time you put that film on, it's a party. So, yeah. but anyway... And you talk about the uh, Lost Highway and Mulholland Drive. Those are the two where I got off the the lynch train. Okay. You know, in high school, I'd heard about Eraserhead, and it's this weird little movie that this guy did, and it'll blow your mind, man. You know, so when yeah. the, the video store, I checked it out, and whoa, <laughs> that's weird. But I could... I could follow it and I could appreciate it. And wow, this is definitely a unique vision. I haven't seen this before. And then he did, uh, what did he do? Did he do? Probably the elephant. elephant. Man? Yeah. I, elephant man. Yep. Yeah. Dude. My mom took me to see the elephant man because she had a crush on Anthony Hopkins. So I saw that in theaters and then he did Dune. Uh, I saw that. Uh, Blue Velvet, I liked a lot. When I saw Blue Velvet, I was like, wow, I finally have a favorite director because I'd heard other people talking about. And I'd, I had just gotten to the point where I realized that there are people that actually make the movies that are more important than the people starring in them. Uh, yeah. So I thought, great. Now I have a new, you know, I have my own favorite director, David Lynch. And then he put out um, uh, the one with Nicolas Cage. Uh, wild at heart or yeah mm-hmm. yeah okay i like nicholas cage from raising arizona and it was a little weird but i could still follow it and then i think i i think he went and did the uh the twin peaks stuff was that before yeah. or after somewhere in there 
I think and so, I, yeah. You know, like I said, I I sat that whole thing out. By the right. time Lost Highway came out, I think I heard the soundtrack to that before I saw the film. And I liked the soundtrack so much, I thought, oh, I gotta see this movie. And it's David Lynch. And, okay. <laughs> yeah, Lost Molly. Highway is is so out there. Um, and, you know, yeah, I was going to say, you, you mentioned the soundtrack, and I think there's like some David Bowie stuff on that. It's really good. Yeah. Um, Lost Highway. <sighs> I need to come back to it again. It's been a long time since I saw it. I do remember that um, it was just one of those films where I think that you could probably interpret it any possible way and be right. Mm-hmm. Um, but when Mulholland drive came out, I, um, I kind of assumed that it was going to be the same thing that it was going to have the same level of kind of ambiguity and the frustration that comes along with ambiguity. But, um, Mulholland drive is different because, um, it does make sense. Um, from a particular point of view. And there is definitely a specific interpretation for that film that makes perfect sense um, after you watch it and after you kind of think about it or if you read um, any any of the analysis of the film about what it's about. Um, and so I always thought that that was a little different than Lost Highway because I thought Lost Highway was so kind of abstract and ambiguous for its own, you know, for, for you know, for whatever reason. That's the way Lynch wanted to do it. So, mm-hmm. but yeah, I think Mulholland Drive is my favorite Lynch film for sure. Yeah, I saw that one too, and it it just kind of fried my brain at the end. <laughs> when the, the little people come crawling out. And then the actresses are different, but they're the they're, they switch or something weird like that. And yes, uh, and I knew there's something to this, and I would probably dig it if I spent the brain power to sort it out. You know, maybe watch it two or three more times, take notes, and slow down and try to notice little details. But it, I don't know. I think. By that point, I discovered other directors that yeah mm-hmm. did a lot of similar things, but not quite so deep and uh, challenging to sound like a cinepus. <laughs> <laughs> right. dive for today is a film called murder by music dun, dun, dun.
off-duty sailor investigates the seemingly unrelated suicides of his sister and her music teacher, and with the aid of the sister's friend and the teacher's nephew, discovers a link between their deaths and London's hippie scene. Boy, do they ever. Oh, yeah. So, Al, why don't you, before we get into the deep dive, give us some production uh, info. And I know that you have a very special connection with Romina Power that we would love to hear about. Okay. Well, I'll save her for the end. Uh, <laughs> well, because it um, it could either take five minutes or I could get stuck in a rut and talk about her for half an hour. Um, all right. So... Saving her for last, I'll just start with the director, Julio Books, or whatever. Uh, he has 15 directing credits, which include a lot of spaghetti westerns. He was born and died in Spain. So I think this was an international Spanish-Italian production, which was shot in London, apparently. Or at least uh, some enough inserts of... Uh, London landmarks, but I, I got a pretty good feel that it was shot in London. Yeah. Um. Uh, he also has a lot of writing credits, sixteen, including this film. He had two co-writers on this film. One was an Italian, and one was a Spaniard. The Italian Sandro Continenza had a hundred and fifty-nine writing credits until his death in ninety-six. His writing credits include things we might have heard of called uh, The Original Inglorious Bastards and Let Sleeping Corpses Lie, otherwise known as uh, Living Dead at Manchester Moor, a British zombie film okay. from the 70s. Uh, the Spanish co-writer was Federico de Uratia. Uh, he died in 88. He had 28 writing credits, including a ton of spaghetti westerns. And I think it's interesting that so many of these spaghetti westerns were shot and written by and produced by Spaniards. So maybe there should be some other type of, uh, like, paella westerns or something. Yeah, right, taco western. Yeah. Uh, the producers, again, one is Italian and one is Spanish. Uh, the Italian Edmondo Amati. Uh, he was a producer on things we've definitely heard of before, such as Don't Torture a Duckling, Crimes of the Black Cat, and Lizard in a Woman's Skin. The Spanish co-producer, Jose Frade, uh, produced one on top of the other, Forbidden Photos of a Woman Above Suspicion, and Lizard in a Woman's Skin, among other things. The cinematographer, Manuel Rojas, from Spain, worked on My Dear Killer, and one of my favorite Spanish films from the 70s is called Bell from Hell. Huh. It's, uh, it's not a Jalo, but it has been released, I think, on Blu-ray in the last few years. So if you get a chance, try to find a copy of that it's pretty wacky and interesting the music was composed by johnny ferio an italian 
He also worked on Bloodstained Butterfly and Death Walks at Midnight, among other films. And speaking of the music, I I like how in this film, which obviously is about music, they switch a lot between diegetic and non-diegetic music, and it's not always clear when that is happening. So I, I kind of thought that was a cool effect throughout the film. So yes, what you were saying uh, is really imp- uh, and it really important to the film in that um, the the whole idea of what are we listening to, what are we hearing, and how much of that are the characters also hearing? Um, I thought that was a really um, a really well done aspect to this particular film. Mm-hmm. And we'll get into it when we talk through it. But Oh, another thing. You were talking about alternate titles, Trumpets of the Apocalypse and Perversion Story. The copy of this I saw was a rip from an Italian TV broadcast, and the title card for it was Icaldi Amori di una Minorenne, which is translated as the hot loves of an underage girl. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I'm with you on that. I looked that one up too. And um, Uh I think we, I think you and I both saw like the only copy that's in circulation right now. Um, And it's a bad like VHS rip. It's, it it looks, yeah, it definitely needs a cleanup. uh, It needs a cleanup. Yeah. But yeah, I was, but, I was, uh, I was interested in that particular title. <laughs> yeah, well, even perversion story doesn't really match the the plot at all, right? But this one certainly does not match. I mean, uh, I'm not sure that anybody we've seen was underage. Maybe, but uh, it's it's not spelled out, and uh, there's only one. Well, anyway, we'll get to it. Uh, okay. So we did writers, actors, uh, the male protagonist in this film is a character named Richard Milford. He is played by an actor named Brett Halsey, an American born in 1933. He had 155 acting credits from 1953 to 2015 including TV and films, a lot of spaghetti westerns, and soap operas in the United States. He was on, I think it was Guiding Light and uh, something else. Something, I can't remember. Anyway, he was on at least two different soap operas in America. And then he went on to more artistically satisfying television jobs like bionic woman and charlie's angels so good for him yeah definitely um the woman who is helping him uh solve the mystery of what's happening in this film uh the character's name is helen she's played by marilu tolo she is italian born in 44 she has 74 acting credits from 1960 until 1985. She was in My Dear Killer. She was also in a 
maybe a pseudo Jalo as opposed to a proto Jalo. I'll say a pseudo Jalo <laughs> called "Kill the Fatted Calf and Roast It." Ah, and, I've never seen that. Yeah, I have it, but I haven't seen it yet. So I might get around to that. And she was also on an episode of Charlie's Angels. And huh. obviously, I think the Jalo gods are pointing us towards doing an episode about Charlie's Angels. Because there, there is at least one episode of Charlie's Angels that uh, I think would be fun to score, if not cover. Cool. Uh, let's see. There is a character in the film named Harry. Uh, we first meet him as a DJ in a swinging, groovy hippie club. And we learn more about him later. He is played by Fabrizio Moroni, an Italian uh, who lived from 45 until 06. Uh, 26 acting credits. And he was in Four Flies on Grey Velvet and 1981's Murder Syndrome with Anita Strindberg and... I forget who else, but it was one of the later era Jalos. I don't remember him from Four Flies on Grey Velvet. He might have just been like the bass player in the band or something. I, <laughs> I didn't bother going back and looking, trying to find him. He has two very distinct looks in this film. And yeah. when I found pictures of him online, he would have like completely different looking hair. and I mean, He has a pretty generic movie star face. Okay, this film has a Romanian character named Boris. He is played by Manuel de Blas. He is Spanish, uh, born in 1941, 219 acting credits, ranging Ooh. from 1961 to the present. He was in one of the uh, Blind Dead films, uh, Ghost Galleon which I think okay. was the third one or maybe the fourth one in the series. And he was also in a Spanish horror favorite of mine called Vampire's Night Orgy, which is worth checking out. There's a character named Loco. He is played by Miguel de Riva. I could not find any information about his birth or possible death. He has 41 acting credits that go from 56 to 85 including a couple Euro spy, but mostly spaghetti westerns. Uh, another main character is Albert. He plays the nephew of a professor who, not really a spoiler because it's the first thing you see, a professor who commits suicide. He is played by Alberto Dalbez, who was in a lot of Spanish films. Until his death in 1983, he was born in Argentina and then moved to Spain. He has 70 acting credits, including my favorite Paul Nashi film, which is titled Hunchback of the Morgue. And like Bell from Hell, that is totally batshit and entertaining, fun <laughs> roller coaster ride of what I can't believe I just saw what I just saw. Type, uh, film so uh, that's recently out on blu-ray too so i'd recommend checking that out so as far as the main actors go that only leaves romina power who plays the part of fanny 
Yeah. Okay. Romina Power is the daughter of Tyrone Power, the actor from classical Age of Hollywood. Uh, she was born in the U.S., Los Angeles, in 1951. She has 23 acting credits from... 1965 until 2021. So I guess you could say her acting career's ongoing. Uh, some of the films listeners of the show might have seen her in. Well, one of them is Jess Franco's Marquis de Sade's Justine. Also from 1969 that she co-starred in with Klaus Kinski. So that might be worth looking into. Mm. The thing about Romina Power is she moved to Italy at some point in the, I'm guessing, mid-60s. And she fell in love and married a singer whose name is Albano. Well, that's his, his name is Albano, but his full name is Albano Carisi. She married him and they became through the 70s and 80s, kind of like the Italian Sonny and Cher. Okay. They released 22 albums and sold over 150 million copies. And wow. that's a big feat because even now, Italy has less, slightly less than 60 million inhabitants. Okay. Yeah. So for any musical group to sell 150 albums, that's like selling every person in the country. Uh, okay, let me train wreck on the math here. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's like selling everybody in the country uh, at least two, two and a half albums. Okay. And, and that, that never happens. Yeah. They were hugely successful. They were everywhere. They did seven films together, which I think Sonny and Cher also did. Uh, I've never seen of the Albano and Romina films, but they were arguably at the peak of their success in 1984. 1984 was my first full year living in Southern Italy. Okay. And going to school on base at a, uh, a Department of Defense school for military dependents. Okay. That year, Albano and Romina won the 1984 San Remo Music Festival, which is kind of like people are familiar with the Eurovision Song Festival, maybe. Okay. Well, this is one that is just, it celebrates Italian music and it's a big deal over here. It goes on every summer. It lasts about I don't know, three or four nights. Uh, different Italian musicians and bands come out, they'll play songs and then people call in to vote or send in postcards back in the day. And if you win, it's kind of like winning the Oscar for best song of the year. Gotcha. And every year they put out like a two out, a double album compilation of all the songs in the San Remo Music Festival. And if you're an Italian musician, the biggest thing you could hope for is to win the San Remo Music Festival. 
they won it in 1984. They were huge. Nobody in Italy did not know who Albano and Romino were. Wow. Uh, it just so happened that Albano, the husband, he was from a town in southern Italy, not far from the military base where I was going to school. And his wife, Romina, being uh, American, they had children. And because of certain aspects of the criminal element in the south of Italy at the time, it was very common for rich people to have their children kidnapped and held for ransom. Mm. Wow. So... Being uh, wealthy and popular, they pulled some strings and paid some money, and they made arrangements so that their children could go to school on the military base, where they would be safe from ending up in somebody's trunk between classes or something. Right. Right, okay. Their oldest daughter was named Elenia, and she was in my class. And this was a very small base, so the school was very small. My first year there, I was in seventh grade, and in all of seventh grade, there were maybe 25 kids. So everybody knew everybody. We had two separate homerooms, but... And... It was like a little bubble of America in the middle of southern Italy. So everybody was really close and tight. But there was this one girl. She spoke perfect English. But I knew that her parents were not military. And she always seemed kind of detached. And I mistook it as aloof. Like she was kind of snobby, maybe. Yeah. But I think in hindsight, I was just kind of filling that in because I didn't know her very well. Well, it turned out Elena's mom and dad are super rich, famous rock stars or pop stars in Italy. (laughs) And, uh, when my cousins found out that I was, well, they, it wasn't a secret, but when they realized I was going to school on base, they would all come to me and say, Oh my God, do you know Elena? Yeah. I sit next to her in home room. (laughs) <laughs> oh my God, oh my God, invite her to your house. And no, I'm not going to invite her to my house. <laughs> oh my God, do you know who her parents are? No, I don't. And my cousin literally turned around and picked up a TV guide or one of those weekly entertainment like People or Us Weekly, you know, right. one of those magazines. And her parents were on the cover and he points to the magazine. And I was like, what, her, her parents publish a magazine? No, dumbass, these are her parents. And I was like, oh. <laughs> So, oh, okay. So I learned that Elenia's mother and dad are super famous. You know, they're like the Sunny and Cher. Okay, great. Uh, she was, I mean, I was there for two and a half school years. So we got to know each other as, as you know, just kind of by default, just by being around each other. Right. Uh, she never really liked me because I was a a one-man Beavis and Butthead in middle school. <laughs> yeah. I was crude. I was obnoxious. I was 
zero class <laughs> you know <laughs> and uh but i i did get to know her some because we were in a we were put together in a reading group for english class and she and i got into a big fight because one day when i was late coming home from lunch well not coming home but when i was coming back to class wow. after lunch break uh we had english and i was five minutes late and she and her two little uh, female friends that were on our group voted to call our group Pegasus uh, because each little reading group had its own name. And I was so livid because my friend and I, who was like the, the beavis to my butthead or vice versa, we wanted right. to call it something cool like the Destroyers or you know, something <laughs> stupid. Uh, right. But I... There was another time where they took a field trip. The the school took a field trip to Rome and I could not go because my parents were upset because I wasn't on the the dean well the uh, what do you call it? Uh the honor roll the or honor whatever roll. for that yeah. semester. Yeah. yeah. So they decided to punish me by not letting me go to Rome for the the week. And her parents wouldn't let her go to Rome because the whole idea was she needs to, you know, we can't send her off in some uh, some trip with a bunch of kids where, you know, something bad could happen. Well, right. during that week, the kids that didn't go on the trip basically had seven periods of study hall every day, you know, like all six of us, <laughs> Monday through Friday. So we kind of got to know each other a little bit during that time. Uh, I kind of stopped being obnoxious and she kind of let her guard down a little bit and we, we kind of got to know each other a little bit. There was a teacher-parent conference uh, that, that first year that I was there and I was there waiting for my folks to come. My dad was at work uh, down base where he was. And my friends and I were kind of just zigzagging in and out of the classrooms. They had put snacks and stuff out for the parents to nibble on while they're chatting with the teachers. Uh, and I remember looking down the hallway and I see this couple walking towards me and they are obviously not military. The guy, his hair is a right. little too long. He has, uh, too much stubble on his cheeks and he's dressed like, you know, the whole, uh, Sopranos type thing where you got like gold chains and a pinky ring and a solid gold watch and, uh, leather boots and leather jacket and dark, yeah. expensive looking sunglasses. And the woman that was walking next to him was at that point, the most stunning beautiful woman I'd ever seen face to face in my life. <laughs> Still and, to this you know, day? people, uh, well, yeah, probably, probably. Yeah. Well, the fact that I'm having trouble thinking of one that would compare. Yeah. Right. But, you know, to my credit, I was 13. Okay. <laughs> sure. I'm not saying that if I was, 52, she wouldn't have been much. Okay. It's not like that. But 
I think it was just that time when, oh my God, what is this? And it was, she was gorgeous. And she asked me which room is Mrs. Skog's room. And I had to, I opened my mouth to say it's the second door on the left. And what came out was, uh, 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 and I just pointed like, <laughs> like an idiot. And uh, the husband just kind of smacked me on the shoulder and said, grazie, grazie. And I was like, this guy's a town. Who the fuck is? And then it hit me. Like, like I had a, hey, we did 200 movies, brain fart. This is a, the couple from that magazine cover. These are Elena's parents. So uh, that was my first face-to-face encounter with the actress in this film. Wow. Um, she had, I think there were a couple other times that she would come because uh, Elena was on one of the school sports. I don't remember which one it was, but we would have competitions with the other schools in Italy. And I think I saw them there once or twice after that. Um, okay. So that's my connection with Romina Power. Yes. There's more to the story if you think we have time to get into it. But it's not really a Romina story. It's a story about her daughter. Oh, okay. Well, why don't we save it for when we do The Insatiables? Because she's in that oh. too. Okay. And then we could and then we could do part, you know, part 2. Keep okay. keep the uh, audience uh yeah, you know, on the edge of their yeah. seats there. <laughs> Tune in next time. Tune in next time for more of Romina Power. <laughs> the Romina Power Al Owens connection. Um, okay. But, you know, I think I noticed her. Is she in another Jalo and I can't remember besides these two? Or am I Jalo. drawing a blank? Um, I don't I don't know. Um, all I know is that uh, She's certainly, um, in 1969, she was, I don't know, 17, maybe, or 18. She must have been 18, yeah. And um, she's just absolutely, you know, she, she, she the, the moments where she's on screen in this film, mm-hmm. she really, her character is just worthless, but um, it doesn't matter because I watch every frame of it. <laughs> Because she's just, she's so eye-catching. And and she's got this dance that she does in this movie where (laughs) she kind of, she kind of bends her elbows and she moves her hands back and she kind of snaps like she's doing her finger snapping, but she, Mm -hmm. she's looking down, her hips are going back and forth. And I don't know if that dance would still be considered acceptable by today's standards, but I think back then it was, it was certainly, um, what you would consider to be a typical sixties hippie dance. But it yeah. seems like in this movie that all she really wants to do is um, dance. She's bored and the music's playing and she's dancing. So well, even when she's by herself, she just dances. She just dances. Yep. It's yeah. At the mouse hole. Yeah. So, all right. Well, that is quite a story. And um, I don't think any, I, you know, listen, can you think of any other place on the planet where two people would be discussing this particular film 
And one of those two people has had direct contact with one of the people in the film. I mean, like, come on, you know, guys, mm. this is, this is a free podcast. It's worth <laughs> twice that at least double the yeah. price of admission. Anyway. Um, yeah. Part two of that story is for Patreons only. We're going to start a Patreon next year and that'll be our first paid feature. Um, yeah. Anyway. So murder by music is the film and thank you for all of that information. And um, we will uh, probably hearken back to some of the stuff you brought up um, in going through the notes, but let's get through the, uh, some of the scene by scene here. Okay. Um, so the movie opens, um, it opens very, the opening scene is very quick. Um, it looks like either a day for night shot or a nighttime shot of an exterior. And I think that that particular exterior has been used in a couple of other films. Uh, if I'm not mistaken, I want to say off the top of my head, um, oh, damn it. Uh, it'll come to me later. Um, but we hear these this organ music playing. We see this police officer who's kind of like strolling through the area. Um, the organ music starts to get more frantic and more kind of discordant. And um, all of a sudden we see a figure jump from an open window and the camera pans down to show that it's an old man uh, laying in the street and the police officer blows his whistle. And we immediately jump to the disco scene and um, we're, you know, we're just thrust out of that scene of the suicide jump into this flashing lights, uh, psychedelic, uh, funky dance music uh, we're, we're in a club. Uh, it is actually the first time that we see Harry, uh, um, Boris and Fanny together, but we don't know who they are yet. Um, mm -hmm. And we go over, the camera pans around to the DJ booth, and uh, this very odd-looking man who's clearly wearing a blonde wig is in the booth. He opens the newspaper and uh, reads the news about the suicide of Professor John Stone. So now, obviously, since the first scene transitioned to this one, at least one or two days has gone by. Um, and it says, in a, in an apparent fit of insanity while working on his music, Professor John Stone committed suicide. Um, suddenly, this blonde wig wearing DJ, who we find out's name is eventually, we find out is Harry, um, realizes that something is wrong. He runs out of the club as quickly as possible. And uh, Fanny and Harry, uh, I'm sorry, Fanny and Boris, who, again, we don't know that that's these people yet. Um, they say something about um, where's Harry off to. And we do see for one split second on the left side of the screen, a shot of the hurdy gurdy man who's got mm -hmm. his like organ grinder. Um, Harry continues running. The organ music returns to what we're listening to. Again, we don't know if this is supposed to be theme music for the film or if it's music that uh, only the characters hear or both. Um, but eventually Harry arrives at the same spot as the 
I think it looks like the same spot as where um, we saw the, the first suicide. But now that I'm thinking about the narrative, it's not the same spot because. Um, I, I think the building is a different building. The woman who jumps out of the window this time breaks through the glass and falls to her death. And Harry says, you know, it's Catherine. Um, mm -hmm. And the organ music continues to play. And then we roll into the credits. Um, and uh, the credits are very psychedelic and trippy and lots of swirling and various um, kind of clips from the movie that, you know, are abstract enough to not really give away the story. They're presented. Um, and we see all of the film credits, production credits that we talked about. And again, we see the, the name of the film is presented as Icaldi Amori di Una Minorene. Did I say that right? Minorene? Yeah, pretty good. Okay. Mm -hmm. The Hot Loves of a Minor. Um, well, it's specifically a female minor. Oh, okay. Because of the, the A at the end of Una okay. indicates a, it's a female. Feminine. Because minoren, it just means a minor, like neutral. Gotcha. But if it was a a, a male said minor, you would say un. Mm. Yeah, okay. un gotcha. minoren. But you add the A, that indicates you're talking about a female. So, so the hot loves of a female, an underaged female. Yeah. Okay. Um, So after the credits roll are, are done, we are sitting at the funeral. Um for Catherine Milford. Um, there's a family plot. It doesn't look like very many people came out to this funeral or maybe the only two people are left um, still standing while they fill in the grave. Um, but it's, it's a character named Helen and someone else who we never see again, who's mm -hmm. obviously a, a relative. Um, but then we notice that Harry is sneaking around the graveyard and after they leave, he brings flowers to the grave um, and then we cut over to uh, Helen and this other woman walking and Catherine or uh, and Helen is saying that um, she doesn't believe uh, that Catherine had committed suicide. Um, so that's really our intro. Um, the next thing that happens of, of importance is that um, Catherine's brother, Richard arrives. He is, I mean, uh, I want to say that he's more than a civil servant, but I don't necessarily think he's military. He's some sort of a sailor. Um, I think it might be the merchant Marines. Okay. Because if he was just the captain of a private ship, I don't think he'd have a uniform with a rank insignia on the flag. I mean, on the sleeves like that. Right. Yeah. He's, he's definitely a else. He's definitely official in some capacity, but I think his his importance is higher than, say, a, a postal worker or a garbage man, but lower than, say, somebody in the army. But I don't know because I don't know very much about, you know, the UK military, England, English military. So well, um, I at think any it's, rate, it's high enough for him to carry a revolver, which we right. find out about later. And yes. From what I know, even the police walking the streets in London aren't packing, right? That right, exactly. They don't carry, yeah. and uh, and he certainly um, is 
you know, as we see later, can take care of himself, you know, from a, from a, from a fighting standpoint, from, from a hand-to-hand combat standpoint. So he's had mm. some training. Um, so he's Catherine's brother, and he's arrived to bring her a piano, which is light enough for two people to carry for some reason. <laughs> it's pretty small, too. Yeah. Um, when he said it was for his pretty little sister, I thought, is she six? <laughs> yeah. Okay. <laughs> exactly. She's gonna she's gonna have to bend all the way down to play that piano. Right. Um, so he gets in the cab, we get a little montage of London. I don't know if you noticed, but they show um an advertisement for the graduate showing at one of the local movie theaters. Yeah. Um which is which is interesting. I guess that was that wasn't planned. That was probably what was going on at the time um, in England. Um, mm-hmm. So uh, Richard arrives at Catherine's flat, um, but Helen answers the door and proceeds to tell him that Catherine is dead. Um, they had been living in that flat for a while, but then there was a fight um, because Catherine was dating somebody that Helen didn't like and Catherine left. And we find out that this person that she didn't like is Boris, who we've seen before, but we don't know who it is yet. Um, And they actually have a flashback scene where uh, Catherine and Helen are having some sort of tea and they don't, there's no audio from the flashback scene. There's a voiceover. And I kind of believe that they may have done that just so that the actress who played Catherine had a little bit more screen time um, because she was pretty um, she was very attractive, but she was in the movie for 10 seconds. So mm-hmm. um, I'm assuming that that's why they did that. But uh, yeah. at any rate, um, Catherine says to Helen that she's feeling good. Um, and you know, she says, this doesn't seem like somebody who's going to commit suicide. Um, and then she mentions uh, the death of Professor Stone and the similar circumstances. Um, so Richard goes to the police and he mentions Boris and um, they seem to already know about him. Um, and they don't think that the suicides are linked. And so as a result, the case is closed and that really opens up the story to having Richard and Helen be our amateur detectives for the film because the cops don't want to have anything to do with anything. They basically say, look, there's so many people that get killed in London. Um, You know, you could get really hung up on trying to solve every one of them, or you can just go about your business and, you know, fix as much as you can and, 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 you know, keep, keep moving. And that seems to be the philosophy of the police department. So I like the way that the inspector just kind of tried to sum it up is how, well, okay. Yeah. Your sister jumped out of the window and killed herself. And whoa, what a coincidence. The, her music professor did the same thing the night before, (laughs) but they're not connected because the professor was crazy and your sister was just dumped. So (laughs) (laughs) right. That was the difference. She was just lovesick. Yeah. One was bonkers. One was scorned. Right. Nothing to see here. Move on. Yeah. <laughs> and then he tells him, oh, no, no. Okay. I was confused. No, something else. Okay. 
Well, yeah. The way they just try to brush it all under the rug. But there's the one cop in the room. Uh, I call him Inspector Glasses. Yeah. <laughs> he uh, respectfully disagrees. He thinks there might be some connection. So He sure does. Yeah, mm-hmm. he and uh, and he we'll see him later because he's just he's not satisfied and he goes on his own little investigation later on in the film. Mm-hmm. Um, so after leaving the police, Richard goes to the flat where Catherine moved to and the caretaker uh, woman who, you know, runs the the flat or the landlord or whoever. She mentions that Boris would visit occasionally and um, they go up to Catherine's old room and it's in shambles because the person who is renting there now is a slob and an artist <laughs> and whatnot. And eventually, yeah, so, but yeah, exactly. All these artists, you know how these artists are, she says. <laughs> um, and eventually she shows up and tries to, you know, basically throws herself at Richard. Everyone throws themselves at Richard, um, mm-hmm. but he's not having it. Uh, in any of these things. So um, they, um, let's see. Oh, oh, yeah. Okay. So the woman uh, currently renting shows up and throws herself at Richard and she tells Harry where to find Boris. So um, at first I was like, what did they, why did they put her into this? Uh, film what significance does she have and she does have a little bit of a scene at the end too but um she her her role is to basically say hey i'm i'm part of this you know hippie underground and i know boris and i can tell you where to meet him or find Mm -hmm. him um so uh the place is called the mouse hole we now know and we go you know the viewer as a viewer we go back to the we go back to the club. Uh, Harry is there again in his blonde wig and he is spinning records. Richard and Helen show up and they grab a table to wait to see if Boris comes. And a couple, uh, you know, I think a pack of three, like no named hippies decide that they're going to just pick a fight with Richard. And um, Richard, like I said, can hold his own eventually beats them all up Um and as he's in the middle of fighting, we see Fanny and Fanny comes down the stairs and she's staring at him. Um, all of a sudden, Boris jumps in and he joins the fight. Uh, they eventually kick these hippies out. And um, Boris mentions something to Richard about how he can hold his own. So they've been introduced. But Fanny drags Boris back to the dance floor because she's bored and she wants to dance. And so Richard and Helen leave. And I think at this point, it's assumed that we've been introduced to Boris and Richard has been into Boris or been introduced to Boris at the same time. So um, the characters have been kind of set up at this point, um, but there's still a few more people to talk to. And Richard uh, drops Helen off at her house. He wants to go back to the club, but Helen says, you know, we should probably go talk to professor stone's wife and see what's going on over there. So Helen goes there by herself uh, Richard's not with her and we meet Albert for the first time. Uh, Albert is, I believe, um, professor stone's wife's nephew. Maybe I think yeah. that's how he's introduced. Mm-hmm. Um, 
So Helen, I think, see, this is the thing that I was confused about. Helen is not a student of Professor Stone. Or is she? She I is. She is. But, um, so she goes to get her notes. Mm-hmm. Um, because, you know, hey, Professor Stone's dead and, you know, I need to continue my studies. So that's a legitimate reason to be going there. And then she says, oh, a friend of mine named Catherine so-and-so, uh, Catherine Milford, um, I need to get her notes too. And the wife says, well, I don't have any notes for Catherine and I never heard of anybody named Catherine and I would have remembered her name or something like that. So. Yeah, I think Helen went there fishing for some connection between Catherine and Professor Stone. Right, exactly. I mean, it's possible that she did need her notes, her uh, portfolio or whatever it is that she takes with her. It's possible she did want that back since, you know, he's dead. How many people get it back? But, but yeah, but her the main saying, idea was... right. She's she seeing that there's a connection or maybe she, I don't know. It could be possible that Catherine told her she was a student of Professor Stone's and it, she's finding out that she actually wasn't. Yeah. Well, that was the part that I was confused about. I mean, I know that, uh, well, I guess we find out later at the end of the movie, the connection between Catherine and Professor Stone. But right. a- according to his wife, she's not a student of his. So, Oh, right. Um, because they're only tangentially connected. Right. Through, through, uh, through, through Harry. Right. So, um, and at one point in this scene, after Helen leaves the stone residence and gets in her car, we see that someone is following her. We don't see who it is. It's just a figure... Um, and I think we see like some black gloves, um, quickly. Um, the next scene, I think we're back into the London underground. We see the hurdy gurdy man again, and this really like Norse looking hippie. Um, I mean, he's like straight out of, um, Viking land. He's, he's got more blonde hair than I've ever seen anyone. (laughs) Um, it's unbelievable. Norse hippies are my least favorite hippies. (laughs) Your least exactly. (laughs) There's the subtitle for this episode. Um, If I had a if I had a tenth of the follicle generation that this man has, (laughs) uh, I'd still I don't know. Um, It's not fair. Yeah, it's not fair to see somebody with the scalp where you could not possibly fit one more strand of hair. (laughs) You know, here I am clinging to every last follicle. Yeah. Yeah, anyway. Like for dear life. Yeah. Um <laughs> So, um he stops Richard and says, uh I'm going to take you to find out who killed your sister. Um Richard is a little hesitant, but he has his gun ready. Um and they arrive at this hippie commune. And it reminds me uh, a little bit of um All the Colors of the Dark, which was done a lot later. Um, but it's like okay. you know, a whole bunch of people hanging out. The sitar music is playing. Everybody's getting high. Along the way, after uh, I think this character, the, this particular Norse hippie, I think they call him Prophet later. But as he's leading Richard towards the little uh, 
drug den that they end up going to. They pass a male prostitute. Mm-hmm. I remember that. Who kind of, when he sees Richard, he kind of perks up and does this little, like, uh, like half whistle type sound. Yeah. That male prostitute has so much dark eye shadow <laughs> on, okay? And at first I didn't think much of it. I was like, damn, dude, lay off the eye shadow, right? But he's obviously, hey, you know, offering himself or making a proposition, like I said. Uh, Richard stops, looks at him, and just walks off. He doesn't look too bothered by it. Later, throughout the rest of the film, and maybe I'm just reading it into it, but there are a couple times when people say kind of funny things about sailors and about Richard, and there is that whole stereotype. But I noticed that throughout the rest of the film, there are many, many shots, almost every scene, Richard seems to be wearing uh, very dark eyeshadow also. Did you notice that? Yeah, I think so. I think his, his, uh, the top of his, if his, his top eyelid. Is, yeah, very pronounced. Yeah, but it's not just like shadow from the brow, you know, like his, his cranial structure is such that his eyes are always in darkness. It looks like he's wearing dark eyeshadow. Um, and I didn't really notice that with any of the other male characters when they show close ups right. of Harry or Al- Albert. And even uh, Boris, you don't see that. So I'm wondering if that was some kind of subtle coding that they're trying to slip in there. Hmm. With the uh, with the idea of trying to, you know, kind of categorize. Yeah, trying uh, to play up like a, a homosexual subtext for. Right. For Richard. For Richard. Yeah. And um, I mean, yeah, I'm looking at it now. I mean, he's definitely got the eyeshadow thing going on. Um, I wonder, um, but, you know, later on in the film, he um, he gets involved with Helen. And they have eventually, like, you know, yeah, the love, this love interest. But yeah, up until that point, he's basically kind of, you know pushing anybody else aside. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think it's more for, for Richard, it's more about um, he doesn't have respect for um, the women from this kind of class, you know, this True. kind of den of yeah. iniquity that they all live in. And, and they're all kind of, you know, he's an establishment kind of guy. He's uh, you know, he's very, um, conservative and proper um mm-hmm. from what we from what we gather from his um from his occupation you know so that that may be one of the reasons why he's not interested in any of these women but well that i think that could probably most likely be it but what i think is the filmmakers i'm not saying that the filmmakers are saying richard is gay because he's a sailor get it I think the filmmakers might be kind of playing with our expectations or the audience expectations because, okay, here's this guy. Uh, he, he 
I mean, to me, it's obvious. There are lots of scenes where they show his face and the top of his eyelids are like gray instead yeah. of. I mean, you know, I have dark bags under my eyes quite often because of sleep and diet and all that <laughs> right. stuff. But it's never gray. <laughs> you know? Yeah, yeah, right. It's kind of like gray is kind of like death almost. Right. And yeah. the fact that um, he turns down the bohemian art chick, uh, who, by the way, was the first girl that we saw when we first saw the, the dance club after at the beginning of the film she was the oh, first okay. one they showed um and then later he turns down another female i won't spoil and there's a part later where some woman i don't remember if it's uh the stone widow or some i don't know some some woman says something about well he's a sailor you know how they are and yeah. it's kind of like just underlining it. You know? So I right, think they're right. kind of playing around with the idea. I don't think they're saying it like it's a fact. Yes. But well, and think- you know, that's what's an interesting kind of connection to that is that I think um, as you get to the end of the film, there's kind of this, this kind of uh, subtext about the, the differences between, you know the 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 cool hip culture and the old world kind of square culture and mm-hmm. what's you know what is the statement when it comes to the fact that you know they play a lot of music in this movie and a lot of mm-hmm. it is the kind of music that at the time a lot of people thought was the devil's music and it made people take drugs and have sex but meanwhile it's this classical piece that at the end ends up being like the most dangerous piece of music. And what is, what is that saying also about, um, you know, the, the commentary that they're, they're, you know, making against the, uh, the establishment and right. uh, the old world and so on and so forth. So yeah, interesting stuff. And it's, it's, it's hard to know whether, you know, that was put in there purposefully and, you know, because A, um, what was the culture like back then? Was that something that they wanted to put in a film kind of as a subtext? And B, you know, did they really think it think it through that much? Or was this more of a, hey, let's just make a movie and, and put a, a bunch of people in there and put eyeshadow on them? You know, it's just to make it interesting. I don't know. I don't know. But, I uh, think there's, yeah. there's something else that will come up later that I think is kind of interesting as a did they plan this or did it just happen which this whole homosexual possible subtext or uh, references uh, I mean they put that guy in the alley whistling and right. looking at him on purpose right that didn't just yeah, happen absolutely yep they did. and the fact that twice in a row he's turning down women but i believe what you're saying he's just he's square right he's conservative he yes he has a job and responsibility and he has a uniform and a haircut and these guys just hang around and do whatever they want and uh so yeah he'd be turned off by the two that he refuses and he ends up with uh 
Helen because he sees that she's serious minded and uh, somehow they fall in love pretty quick. <laughs> yeah. She's pure and pure of heart and pure of mind and that sort of thing. Sort yeah. of. I mean, as much as you can be for this time period. So, mm-hmm. okay. Um, so Richard beats Loco who accuses Boris of killing his sister. And he basically says, Hey, you know, I want you to go and get revenge because uh, um, he, he, he has an ulterior motive. He wants Boris out of the way because Boris and Loco and the hippie commune, they are at odds with each other. Mm-hmm. Um, but Loco doesn't have any proof and Richard um, leaves the hippie commune. But as he's leaving, he gets chased by some thugs and finally runs into Boris and Boris says, um, you know, I had nothing to do with your sister's death. And they get into a fight. Um, and Boris doesn't want the rest of the group to fight his fight for him. He wants to fight Richard by himself. Um, but uh, Richard, again, as we see, is uh, proficient at, at hand-to-hand combat. He can hold his own. Um, and eventually the cops come. Um, and everybody runs away and all of a sudden Fanny comes out from her hiding spot and says, come with me. I'm going to rescue you. Takes uh, Richard into her flat and basically, you know, she, um, they go through this kind of very long winded kind of playful i guess sort of thing where richard is looking at himself in the mirror and trying to like fix it fix himself up from being in the fight and eventually uh fanny is basically says hey you know um i'm all yours tonight um and richard is like no um i'm not really interested in you um you're beautiful and everything but you know uh, i'm gonna say no and I think at that point, Fanny tells him um, that Catherine was on pot, I think. I heard her say. Yeah, that's and what it sounded like. It sounded like pot. And then she and that she basically killed herself because she had a broken heart, which is basically what the cops had already told Richard before. Um, mm-hmm. So Richard leaves and then Fanny goes back to dancing. She's, you know, hey, let's go back to it. Um, uh, so the one thing that I did notice, and I think it's going to be an important bit of information that we call back to later on in the film is that you can see how put off Fanny is when Richard turns her down, like how like angry she gets, (laughs) she has this look in her. She has this look on her face like, are you kidding me? And she, at one point, doesn't she even go over to the mirror and like do a quick spin to just double check that she doesn't look ridiculously hot? She's like, wait right. a minute. <laughs> Is there something wrong? Is there something stuck in the back of my dress? And, you know, after that, it's like it's obvious that she wants revenge on Richard because, you know, she wanted to conquer him. She wanted to, to have him be another notch 
in her, you know, in, in her bedpost as, you know, as the phrase goes. Um, but meanwhile, as because he turned her down, she's just, she can't, she can't believe it. And so now her attention turns to getting revenge instead of getting him. Um, we don't really know that yet, but that's the look that you get from Fanny in that scene. Um, and it's kind of the motivation behind some of the actions that she takes later on in the film. So, um, but anyway, um, the next scene is Helen and she's, uh, asleep in her flat and, um, she's woken up by some sort of noise. Um, she goes out to open the door and she gets chloroformed by, uh, an unseen figure with black gloves, um, who then goes and looks through, uh, all the stuff in her room and notice, uh, I think we noticed that the folder of notes that she got from professor stone's house, uh, is the object of interest for this unknown, uh, intruder. And he takes, he or she takes, uh, the folder with him and, and goes through the window. Um, so we're not, I, I guess at this point, we're not really sure what to make of this because we don't know who the, who the murderer is, if there is a murderer. Um, <clears throat> but <clears throat> it's a, it's another kind of interesting piece to the, to the whodunit. Like, you know, there's still, you know, it's, it's one thing when you have a film and some sort of event happens that results in somebody dying. And then they spend the whole rest of the film trying to figure out who did it. But it's another thing if something is still going on, like besides the fact that they're trying to figure out what happened in the past, there's something that's still active. And when you get to, you know, obviously the later early seventies, uh, Jolly, it's that this is a serial killer and this person is, you know, you know, he, he committed some sort of a murder that gets the attention of our characters, but he or she is still committing the crimes and they're still happening in this movie. Um, that's not exactly the same as we'll find out in the end, but there is people, there are people that are still involved in this mystery that are either trying to cover it up or trying to, um, place blame where, you know, or redirect suspicion in different places and that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. Um, but at any rate, um, let's see, Richard and Helen, um, visit Albert. And, um, this is the first time I think they mentioned this thing about the trumpets of the apocalypse. (laughs) And, uh, then they mentioned that Harry, uh, the guy who DJs at the mouse hole is a student of professor stone. So um, they go to visit Harry um, and Harry, uh, when they go to find him, he's not wearing the wig anymore. He has a completely different look um, because he absolutely detests working at the mouse hole. He hates the music. He hates the people, but um, unlike professor stone uh, who can spend all the time in the world, just, driving himself insane with competition or compositions. Um, he has to make a living. So that's why he's, you know, working at the mouse hole. He doesn't like it at all. Um, and, uh, I think, what do I have here? He also, uh, denies, um, any knowledge of knowing Catherine at this point, even though we know that he's lying. Um, because you know we know from the beginning scenes that he did know who Catherine was. Yeah. 
Um, let's see. The next scene we have Boris and Fanny um, in the same the same basic uh, space that Fanny and Richard were in before. Um, they have some sort of fight uh, about Richard. Um, but it's clear at this point that Fanny wants Boris to hurt Richard or do something bad to Richard because she is, uh, she was rejected and, you know, her pride has been shattered. Um, and she throws it in Boris's face too. Right. She's kind of like, Oh, guess who was just here? That guy that just kicked your ass. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And, uh, he gets mad and he's pretty quick to start slapping her around. Which of course leads to sex, but yeah, uh, as it always does in these yeah. films. <laughs> well, you know, these hippies are nuts. No accounting for what they do. So I don't know if that was uh, if she has some kind of uh, masochistic vibe going on, but she kind of seems to be con- manipulating him to do what she wants. Correct. Yep, and giving as him far sex as like, for it, and also demeaning him and. Yeah. But I mean, it wasn't her slapping him. So she's con- well, It's like she's uh she's a power bottom or whatever they call it. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what that means. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. Uh I only know it from that Sopranos episode where uh, Tony was talking about Janice. But uh, <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh, Janice so. was Janice was explaining um about uh, oh right ralphie ralph yeah ralphie's talk yeah ralphie he bottoms from the top or whatever right right yeah yeah i I I remember that episode yeah um okay so um back to richard and helen um they think harry is lying about knowing Catherine. um and then helen gets a phone call and it's boris of course she doesn't know that Um, (laughs) with an obviously romanian accent yes exactly and she knows I'm, Boris is Romanian. <laughs> yes, I'm. I'm just a typical London person. Um, <laughs> and Boris, the fact that she doesn't hang up the phone and say Boris just called. He wants you to go to Locos. Yeah. yeah. Uh, just such a coincidence that he would happen to have the same accent no. as Boris. Um, <laughs> So he tells Helen to have Richard meet Loco. Loco has some new information. Um, Richard says he will go back and talk to Harry first and then meet Loco. And Helen says, I don't want you to go. Um, back to the hippie commune. Um, we have this big drug smoking scene with this weird looking funnel glass pipe that everyone's passing around. It almost looks like they're playing the harmonica, but it's, you know, it's something else entirely. We don't exactly know what they're smoking. Um, You know, it could be marijuana, but it could also be some sort of weird psychedelic that you're supposed to smoke instead of ingest in some other way. Hmm. Um, But we're never told Um, the people in the commune, you know, they do their freaking out and they're dancing and, it's all kind of weird and crazy. And then all of a sudden, Boris and his gang rush in and attack the hippies. Um, so we'll get back to that in a second. But before that happens, we go back to the mouse hole again. 
and Fanny is still there and she's doing her dancing again with her snapping her fingers and Richard comes in and he's looking for Harry. Um, he runs over to the bartender, um, but the bartender doesn't know anything and the waiter doesn't know anything because he's new. And that whole scene just seems like, I don't know, um, just time a time killer, except for the fact that um, Fanny tries to kind of grab Richard on the way out. Um, but Richard is still just not interested at all. And Fanny is absolutely pissed at this point that she can't convert this man over. Um, and at the end, um, Richard um, brushes by the cops. Um, Inspector Glasses, I think you referred to him as. Yeah. And um, basically the cops are saying, hey, you know, we felt that there was more information that needed to be follow up on. Um, and you can do your own thing, but you know, when things get dangerous, you know, you need to mind your own business and let the police take care of it, which of course, Richard is not going to take that advice. Um, so Richard goes walking, walking through the streets. And he goes to meet Loco. Um, but we know it's a trap and Boris is there and Loco who's been beaten up pretty bad admits uh to to richard that boris is not the killer but boris says i know who the killer is and i want to tell you and richard says okay tell me and then boris says 200 quid and richard says okay and then boris says but not right now i'll tell you tomorrow um and this isn't necessarily the same kind of trope that i brought up before on the jalo score but it's sort of the same like we have this situation where somebody, whether we know it or whether we know it or not to be true, somebody has said, I'm going to tell you who the killer is, but not right now. And in between the time that this person is going to tell you who the killer is and you find out they get murdered. Um, mm -hmm. And this happens all the time in Jalo films, but this one, I, I noticed that, uh, you know, I think at this point that Boris, was bluffing. I don't think he really knew. I know there's a scene where Boris runs into Harry and they talk about, and, and Boris is like, tell me what you know, but I, I don't think this has happened yet. So, you know, I guess maybe Boris knows something about the relationship between Harry and Catherine, but I don't know that he knows very much. So I think that he's just kind of trying to get some money out of Richard. And, and that's it. So Yeah, that might be a just opportunistic trying to bleed the square for 200 quid. Well, and like I said, he might have some inclination that Harry has something to do with it. And he knows that between now and tomorrow, he's going to go over to Harry's and, and kind of um, strong arm him into giving him some information that he can now give to Richard for the 200 quid when they, when they meet up again. But I don't know. Right, because um, if Boris knows Harry, he knows that Harry has a connection with Stone, probably. Right, right. And he knows that Catherine had a connection with Harry and that tangential relationship that uh, I mentioned earlier. Boris probably sees it and thinks he can exploit it. So, why not? Plus, this is a guy that just kicked your ass, Right. Why yeah, take him for two hundred. Might take some money out. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. 
So um, Albert calls Richard and says that there was a break-in um, similar to Helen's. Um, you know, Richard thinks that Harry, Richard already thinks that Harry has something to do with what's going on, but Helen doesn't agree. Helen is like, no, you know, Harry's just this nice, you know, uh, eccentric artiste type person. Um, but I'm not recalling the details. I know there was a point where, uh, Richard goes to see Albert and Albert shows him that there's a crack in the, in the window, but was that later on that, did that happen yet? Uh, no, that comes right after Boris meets Richard at Loco's place. Okay, gotcha. And Loco's laying on the ground all beat up and bloody. And then uh, we cut to Richard shaving in his little hotel room. Alberto calls him. He goes over there and he shows him the hole in the window. Okay, yes. And doesn't um, Miss Mrs. Stone say something about the fact that she thought it was a woman? Yeah. That, that, uh, that broke in. Mm -hmm. And so now they're trying to say, you know, maybe there's not a connection because, um, <clears throat> because uh, Helen's uh, intruder. And she says a terrible man. woman's face. <laughs> right. So now and, they're speculating that it's probably two people working together. Working together. Yes. Yeah. Which is true. So it, it, oh. the funny part is like, they're getting most of this right as they go through the movie. Um, and then there's this thing that they often do in these films, which is Helen and, and uh, Richard have a conversation that starts um, in one particular physical location and continues on as they walk and as they go to different places and ends up concluding in Helen's flat, even though they're still having the same conversation. So... Yeah, so there's the first one they're walking through the park, and then they're walking down the steps of some, I don't know, looks like uh, some kind of ancient arena or something. And then they're walking somewhere else. And it looks like the conversation ends in her living room. <laughs> yeah. And, I, you know, and I just have to um, take a moment to say that if Matt was on the podcast today, he would have something to say about her coat, her fur coat, for sure. Oh, hell yeah. Oh, all um, sorts of clothes in this thing. And that I flashback that, scene yeah. where she was having tea with Catherine before yeah. Catherine died, the dress that Helen was wearing, I think, would have uh, gotten a few comments out of Matt. Yes, absolutely. Not to mention um, Catherine's outfit as well. And I think uh -huh. that's what's interesting about Helen is that she is very pretty and, and sometimes her outfits don't accentuate her looks and other times they do. Like in this scene where she's sitting on the couch with her legs crossed with the white top, she looks really good. Um, but I think there are some other scenes where she's walking around and doing some of her amateur detective stuff where she looks more like a boy um, than uh, a woman. So, hmm. But that's incidental. Um, so they decide that they're going to, I think, do the nasty um, at this point. 
they get on the couch and Richard puts his cigarette away and they, they move the camera away from what's going on. So who knows what actually happened on the couch there, but you could presume well, the worst or the best. It zooms into the smoldering passion happening in the ashtray. Yes. Instead of on the, the couch. Metaphor. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> so uh, Harry comes home back to his apartment and uh, lo and behold, Boris is there waiting for him. And um, he accuses Harry of killing Catherine. Uh, he finds a photo of Catherine that Harry has in his flat. Um, and Harry says, look, I'm going to tell you what really happened. <clears throat> and we don't necessarily hear what happened. We just know that that's what Harry said he's going to tell Boris. Um, next scene, Richard comes to his flat. I think this is the first time we've seen where Richard actually lives. And uh, he stops and talks to the doorman. And this is an interesting scene that seems like it's a throwaway, but it isn't, or at least I don't think it is because um, they have this camaraderie where I think they share some military experience or some sort of, you know, active serviceman um, experience with each other. And they talk about sailing or something like that. And so like that particular relationship and conversation seems like a throwaway, but I think it was used to the advantage of, of Richard later on um, when he's trying to escape from the cops. Um, yeah. The, the desk clerk says something like how he wishes he could just walk away from everything and sail off in a boat and see the world. And basically he envies Richard's career. Right. So I think that's a little bonding moment. And yes. I wondered too, in a place like that, how many people actually bother to stop and have a casual, brief conversation with the desk clerk? He probably gets ignored ninety percent of the time he's sitting yeah. there and people are coming in and out. Yep, probably so. That's for sure. Yeah. Um so let's see. Um there was a note left for Richard um, telling Boris where they should meet and something like 18th and something or other. Uh, Richard goes there and we see the hurdy gurdy man again and the organ music is playing and it sounds the same as the organ music that we've heard before. Mm -hmm. But if it's supposed to be coming from the hurdy gurdy, I think it would sound a little different, but whatever. Um, Richard goes up to the third floor. He stops to ask the woman who's running the hotel or the apartment place, you know, where is Boris? Boris the Romanian. Um, <laughs> that's his last name. The Romanian. Yeah. <laughs> the Romanian. Uh, so he goes There's up to the third. There's only one in London. There's only one. There's only one yeah. Boris from Romania. And that's kind of redundant, too, because where else would Boris be from, you know? Sure. Um, so. As uh, Richard is going up the steps, we hear Boris uh, yelling and arguing or saying something um, and screaming. And I don't remember exactly, but I think Richard goes in to Boris's flat right as Boris uh, throws himself out the window. And 
I'm just looking at it now. Yeah, Boris is yelling about how he can't stand it. I can't stand it. And um, <clears throat> okay, so yeah, so before Richard actually slams through the door, Boris jumps through the window. Um, so Boris jumps to his death, and one of the people outside who notice the body say that he mentioned something about trumpets uh, again. So there's our there's our trumpet connection, mm -hmm. and. Uh, Richard runs back down to see what had happened to Boris and the hurdy man, hurdy gurdy man is still there. And uh, the people who see Richard say, that's the guy who pushed him out the window. So all of a sudden he has to run away um, because he doesn't want to get arrested by the cops. Um, and I so, like when she fingers him, that one dude just runs up to him and swings at him. <laughs> yeah. Like, oh, you say he did it? Wham! And it's not like they just try to encircle him and they immediately go to punch him in the face. Yeah, 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 right. Pretty and um, I think later on when he's giving his uh, testimony, he talks about how the guy has a, a good a good punch. <laughs> right, <laughs> yeah. yeah. So uh, Richard runs home and back to his flat and the cops come there. They, you know, I mean, obviously, where else would you go? to find Richard, you know, if he's, if he's uh, <clears throat> on the lamb, he shouldn't really go back to his place, but he goes there anyway. And again, uh, the reason why we know something about the doorman uh, being friends with Richard is that uh, it's now used as a way for the doorman to call him up and say, Hey, the two, you know, two police inspectors are on your way up to your flat. So, um, the uh, the doorman tips him off, and so Richard is able to escape and go to Helen's place. And they talk about the fact that Boris jumped out of the window and killed himself, and that um, they start talking about how music was playing in all three of these scenarios. And they start talking about the trumpets again. Um, so the next scene, uh, Helen decides that she's going to go to the Academy of Music to talk to her other music professor and she asks him about the trumpets of the apocalypse and he says uh something like no it doesn't mean anything to me except that it's the name of an 18th century symphony um written for strings which is very odd because there's no trumpets in the compo in the compo um, composition yeah, he seems um, to know a lot about it for something that he didn't know about so <laughs> yeah um, I and think the, he after he tells her all this stuff, she's like, well, can yeah. you tell me something about it? And it's like, damn, girl, something else? <laughs> <laughs> Don't you have did. enough? Yeah. <laughs> and, and ironically, the only actual copy of this composition resides with Professor Stone. Dun, dun, dun. Hmm. And I don't know why this professor would know that, but he does. He knows everything <laughs> about it. He wrote the Wicked page on he Trumpets did. of the he Apocalypse. Did. And, and he says something about that the composer was from the court of Saxony and died in a madhouse or something like that. So they're okay. kind of setting the stage here for the, the insanity that ensues um, when, you, um, when you're affiliated with this composition. I'm surprised he didn't tell her that the B-side was hot loves of an underage girl. <laughs> <laughs> right. Oh, man. 
Um, so back at uh, Helen's flat, um, the hurdy gurdy man is there. He's standing outside. Mm-hmm. Um, now this is where Richard is hiding out. Richard opens the blinds and sees the hurdy gurdy man playing his music. Um, but the cops show up and the cops are not there because they necessarily think Richard is there. The cops are there because they know that Richard and Helen know each other and they're going there to question Helen. So, right. So um, they're going there to ask her, it's not like, Oh shit, we just saw him or, you know, somebody spotted him. He's a murder suspect. Let's go catch him. They come around that corner with their sirens blaring and the horn honking and all that. They pull up, and when she shows up, they're like, oh, we'd like to ask you a couple questions, super casual. And do they just like to drive around with their sirens going all the time? Right. Well, that was that was the impression that I got, was that they, they obviously um, were going there because it's some sort of an emergency. But if they're just there yeah. because they were going to ask some questions of Helen, then why, like you said, why do they have to? turn their sirens yeah. on and go, you know, make such a big fuss other than to scare away the hurdy gurdy man or so. to drown out the hurdy gurdy. Yeah, exactly. Well, or to and, alert and, him. You know, yeah. I think it's a plot device more than anything that makes yeah. sense. So, um, Helen happens to arrive at the same time that the cops show up. And so they go, um, into the house together to, um, to talk and basically Helen doesn't say anything. Um, she denies pretty much everything that's going on. And then after the cops leave, uh, Richard comes out of hiding and they look to see what's going on with the hurdy gurdy man, but he's gone. He's nowhere to be found. Um, next scene, uh, Helen and Richard go to talk to Albert about this Trumpets of the Apocalypse manuscript that Professor Stone clearly has because he's the only person that has a copy of it. Um, And Albert remembers seeing it. Um, And at one point, Helen finds it and she goes, do you think this might be it? And right in bold, as big as possible, it says Trumpets of the Apocalypse (laughs) on the manuscript. Maybe this is it. (laughs) I think this might be it. Um, But it turns out that someone (laughs) broke in and instead of stealing it, they traced a copy of the entire manuscript and took it with them Um, because they figured if Mm. the actual original manuscript was stolen, then somebody would notice. So Helen sits down and decides to play it. They won't notice the hole in the window. (laughs) No, right. Of course not. Um, (laughs) So Helen decides she's going to sit down and play it because, I mean, for goodness sake, she's, you know, she hasn't done shit in this whole movie and she's a piano prodigy and she should really yeah. be doing something to help. So she sits and starts yeah. playing and it's the same kind of composition that we heard before. And she's playing it on what appears to be an organ. It, it doesn't sound like a piano. It sounds like an organ. Yeah. Um, I think it's an organ. And it's a very odd piece and it sounds like the, the what we've heard before it's manic it's very discordant and she stops at the end of the piece because instead of no music notation there's arabic writing on the manuscript and lo and behold albert can translate 
the Arabic writing <laughs> on the spot. <clears throat> yeah, on the spot. Because and, uh, yes. composers in old timey Saxony obviously <laughs> wrote notes to themselves in Arabic. In Arabic, right? Come on. Before they <laughs> went crazy in the madhouse in the 18th century. Or maybe they learned it on one of the Crusades or something, but (laughs) (laughs) so to paraphrase what's written in Arabic, um, the symphony was composed under the influence of what they pronounce as ibogain, um, Mm. which is a a psychedelic substance that uh, I did a little research on. Um, It's still used today. It's now referred to as ibogaine or ibogaine um but ibogaine mm. is uh, that sounds much nicer to me i would call it that instead um it is a from what i understand a non-visual psychedelic that many people have decided or many people have have touted um the effectiveness of it for getting people to kick um various types of um, drug habits or alcohol habits. And huh. um, apparently there are places in Mexico and in South America where you can go and do an Ibogain uh, ceremony, just like an ayahuasca ceremony. Yeah. Um, and it's supposedly very helpful um, for addiction, just like they're, they're finding out now that um, uh, psilocybin psychedelic mushrooms are really good for treating depression. And um, the, the stigma of the psychedelic sixties is finally wearing off where scientists are like, yeah, let's, let's, let's acknowledge the fact that these plants have uh, some effectiveness. So anyway, that was my little tour down the rabbit hole of Ibogain. Um, <laughs> okay. But uh, what it basically said in the um, manuscript was if you listen to this composition, under the influence of the drug, you will experience the trumpets of the apocalypse. Um, and so at this point, I think Richard deduces that Professor Stone killed himself because he was on the drug and was starting to play the piece and it drove him crazy as he was playing it. Um, <clears throat> but uh, that Catherine and Boris must have been forced to listen to it by someone. And it's either Albert or it's Harry. And Richard says that the hurdy-gurdy man is the one who knows for sure. Or he doesn't say that. He says, I think I know who would know. And then uh, the next scene, we know that he's heading off to find the hurdy-gurdy man wherever he may live. See, I think that's a pretty big leap in logic. Because how does he know that the hurdy-gurdy man is connected to anything? Did he just put it together well, be- when he heard Helen play it and say, oh, that's the tune the hurdy-gurdy man plays? Well, he heard the tune that the hurdy-gurdy man was playing outside Boris's apartment when Boris threw himself out. And outside the mouse hole a couple times. And Right. Well, I don't know if the hurdy-gurdy man was playing it outside the mouse hole. My, my, my assumption is that Harry made a copy of the piece and then translated the notation into that format that looks like a record. Yeah. Um, but I guess it's not a record really. It's like a, a, a large version of a music box with like raised. Exactly. Right. Um, or a player piano divots. type thing. Yeah, exactly. 
Mm-hmm. So that, I mean, that's what I, I mean, you know, whether, whether it's a, a leap in logic, I mean, you know, this is, you know, here, this, this is what we do on this show. We talk about, logic. <laughs> uh, you know, it's not, well, it's I think the only way it would make sense is if he heard, uh, Helen play it and thought, wait, that's the, but I don't think he ever said that. He's just all of a sudden, oh, the hurdy gurdy man. And then the fact that they know exactly where to find this guy. Yeah. Well, does, doesn't he, doesn't somebody say, all right, so maybe I got this wrong, but the next scene, we're at the slot car races with the hippies and right. uh, Thor um, tells, I think she tells Fanny that Richard was asking about, oh, right, right. I want to say Becker. Yeah, Richard yeah, went to the outside the mouse hole looking for the hurdy gurdy man. Instead, finds the woman selling flowers or something. Right there, you go. Okay, so never mind. And she tells right. him where to find this guy, and his name is Becker, apparently. Yeah. Um. So, um, let's see. So now that Boris is dead, it looks like Fanny is latched herself on to Loco now. Um, but she still wants to get revenge on Richard. And I think that's what she's trying to do. She's trying to get Loco to go after Richard um, because she's still pissed about Richard. Well, it, it seems like both sides have reconciled because at that, uh, what do they call it? Slot car racing? Yeah. She runs up to Loco, and the guy standing next to Loco was uh, Boris's, like, number yeah, two one of the thugs. in his little yeah. gang. Mm-hmm. So now that Boris is out of the picture, both sides are chummy, hanging out, being friendly. I guess and... so. Boris was the the the, 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 the divisive figure in the, the, in the, in the whole... Yeah, I guess so. <laughs> fucking romanian he was the bad yeah. romanian apple <laughs> <laughs> i am a bad apple <laughs> um uh, anyway so i don't remember how this uh evolved but richard and helen and albert they all go together to the junkyard to meet up with becker the hurdy-gurdy man right um but um, when they find when they go into his flat, it, it appears that he's been killed. And the next thing that happens is that Albert disappears. Um, and after Albert disappears, and Helen and Richard um, walk out of uh, Hurdy Gurdy Man's flat, the hippies come out, um, and they chase Richard and Helen. And um, I think at one point. Uh, Helen goes and hides inside one of the cars and Richard tries to fight everybody off, but eventually they overpower him. You know, he's not going to be able to fight off 10 guys forever, you know, throughout this movie. Yeah. Eventually they're going to catch up with him. And um, then uh, Fanny comes out and um, she starts watching and she's got this very amused look on her face to see all of the chaos that she's created. Um, and then the scene switches and real quick, we see Albert and Harry getting together, but they don't really discuss anything before we go back to the scene where the hippies are continuing to, um, 
you know, basically uh, continue to, to, to threaten and, 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 uh, and go after Helen and Richard. Um, and it looks like, you know, they've got the upper hand eventually, but um, finally the cops show up. Um, I think it's like Inspector Glasses shows up, right? Is he in the group? Um, and um. the uh, the cops, um, you know, basically grab Fanny. It looks like they're going to arrest her, and she uh, she just smiles. I don't know if they lead her off and they take her in or if she just walks away because there really isn't anything that they can pin on her. Um, I guess. And, um, yeah, she didn't really do anything. So sit back and literally eat popcorn and watch. Right. (laughs) (laughs) She was eating popcorn for real in the junkyard. Yeah. I wonder if she brought that popcorn along like, Hey, there's going to be a fight. Yeah. I should She probably has like three bags in her hippie purse, you know? Right. Well, she didn't find it at the junkyard, or at least you wouldn't want to eat it when you found it. (laughs) But but she says something like, oh, well, the game is over. And I think that's it. That's the last time we see Fanny. She did her grand exit. Um, Mm. Meanwhile, the cops are about to arrest Richard, but he insists that um, he knows who the real murderer is. Um, so we go back to Harry and Albert who are arguing and <clears throat> Harry, uh, admits that professor stone gave the Ibogain to Catherine who volunteered to do the experiment with the composition. Um, <clears throat> and I guess, uh, that was the connection. So, um, Harry knew Catherine. He knew that Catherine was a piano player and, you know, a musician and Harry was a musician and he knew that professor stone, um, was doing this experiment with this trumpets of the apocalypse. And now we know that Catherine really wasn't a student of professor stone, but, um, that Harry was. And Harry said, Hey, you know, I have somebody that I can, uh, that I can, that's interested in doing this experiment. Now we don't necessarily know why uh, Harry didn't do the experiment himself. Like why would he want to volunteer for this? But that's a question for another day, I think. Well, maybe um, because he didn't want to take the drug. Right. I guess not. Cause he seems kind of square. Um, even though I mean, yeah, he's that's a musician. True. Yeah. He's, he's straight and he's kind of on the straight and narrow. And we already know that, Catherine was involved with Boris and she was smoking pot. And, you know, Mm -hmm. uh, we, we all know that pot is this gateway drug that leads to Ibogain. So, um, (laughs) (laughs) at any rate, um, so then let's see, Harry admits to Boris what happened. Um, but then, uh, he arranged to have Boris take the drug. And have Becker, the hurdy-gurdy man, play the music that he copied from the original manuscript outside of Becker's, I'm sorry, outside of Boris's flat, which would basically be like murdering Boris without actually having to murder Boris. Um, So Albert tells Harry that he must confess, he must go to the police, but Harry attacks and kills him instead. Um, And now... 
So we've kind of identified a murderer, sort of. Um, but it, it's kind of it's kind of cloudy. It's kind of a gray area. And before we get into talking about, I guess you know how this all concluded and what we think of it, the last scene that I watched in this film ended with some non-English speaking um, dialogue, which I'm hoping you're going to be able to translate for me because there was no uh, subtitles for me. Okay, so um, it's after... Yeah, I noticed that too. I wondered if the audio track... Uh, it probably didn't have English, yeah. So the cops yeah, arrive um, and Harry looks out the door. He sees the cops are arriving. He locks the door. He takes the drug. Um, he jumped out the window. And he starts playing the composition and eventually drives himself crazy and jumps out the window. And, and um, if you want to kill yourself, just jump out the window already. <laughs> Why take right. the drugs and well, bang maybe the he, band? The only thing I could say is, you know, maybe, he, you know, his long, he was jealous and his, he really wanted to, to participate in finding out what this whole trumpets oh, of the yeah. apocalypse was all about. And now that he was going to go to prison, for all of this, this was his last chance before, you know, and, you know, and I guess in, in a, in a fit of, you know, temporary insanity, he said to himself, well, you know, the worst thing that's going to happen is I'm going to be taken off to, to prison, but maybe if I take this drug and quickly play the, the piano piece, I will see the trumpets or I will understand the trumpets and then I'll jump out the window anyway. So, you know, what's the difference? I might as well, go out with a bang it'd be funny if the cops had set up one of those uh those things the firefighters use when people yeah. are jumping out of burning buildings <laughs> yeah that'd be great <laughs> he jumps out the window they catch him and roll him uh roll him off yeah he's all he's all pissed damn it <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> i really wanted uh -huh. to be all right let me listen to this and uh i'll do a translation for you some kind of protest, and, and this is what he's saying. He's saying there's always some kind of protest against the law. In the end, however, it's always the same. Well, that kind of doesn't make sense. <laughs> Maybe that's why they didn't have an English version for that. <laughs> Qualche protesta some type of protest per violare to violate oh to violate the natural laws there is always so there's always some kind of protest to violate the natural laws but in the end the end is always the same la fine però è sempre la stessa yeah in the end, however, it's always the same. That's a little bit more interesting because if you think about what the kind of subtext of this is all about with um, so there's always some sort of protest against the natural order of things like oh yeah you know on, on the one hand, you know the natural order of things is the way that things have been done for the last, you know, couple thousand years. And now the hippies are kind of protesting against all of it. And, but in the end, you know, 
Richard and Helen and, you know, Inspector Eyeglasses uh, come out on top because they adhere to the status quo. They're not part of the protest. Um, and then more, I guess, more concretely or more specifically, <clears throat> the composition itself is a protest. Um, maybe, I mean, maybe that's a little bit more too, maybe reaching too much, but it seems the way, you know, that you, you have to, at least for me, knowing that that's what he said in, in reference to the fact that he's looking at the composition and puts it back. I think he's basically saying, Hey, you know, even back in the 18th century, people tried to protest the status quo by, you know, writing this weird piece of music. But in the end, you know, they all killed yeah. themselves because it drove, it drove them crazy. So, well, I'm wondering how much inspector glasses knew about what was going on with the music and the drugs. I mean, did he know that they had translated the Arabic thing and that this music was supposed to be? I mean, I mean maybe, basically, you know, does he know what Alberto and, well, Albert and Helen and Richard know? Well, the only, I mean, the question is, was he following up on all of this on his own or, you know, on the way over? Did Richard tell him, hey, this is what's going on? Because, I mean, yeah. prior to um, prior prior to them arriving at um, Harry's place, they were going to arrest Richard. Um, and they were about to right. take him in. So he's like, look, come with me. I know who did it. And he probably explained it to them on the way over. Okay. That's what I would think, but. Okay, that makes sense. What kind of doesn't make sense is that he picks it up, he looks at it, and then he sets it back down and walks away. <laughs> right. Oh, here's this piece of music that if you play it while you take a certain drug, you immediately you know, look for the nearest window. And he just leaves it there. Okay, thanks. <laughs> so... Well, See, I mean, that's typical of, of what we get from these films from the police, right? So, Yeah. And he didn't pick it up with latex gloves or drop it in a, uh, you know, like a cellophane bag for evidence marking or anything. But I guess things were different then. So what yeah. you're saying, do you think the filmmakers are critiquing this new hippie culture and saying, oh, they're just trying to rebel against the laws of nature and it's going to end in tragedy? Well, I don't know if the filmmakers are saying that or if the filmmakers are saying that the majority, that's the disposition of the majority of the ruling class. Mm -hmm. You know, I don't know if the filmmakers themselves are anti-hippie. I mean, it's, it's kind of hard to be anti-hippie if you're making movies and you're kind of the same age as the hippies. But I don't know. It may be that they aren't the same age because we know some of these directors were making these films in, you know, in the 40s and 50s in their in their age of 40s and 50s but yeah. at the same time you know it's it's artistic um it's you know it's it's uh, a little bit tongue-in-cheek these movies are supposed to be kind of 
protests kind of sort of in the in and of themselves too so maybe the filmmakers are on the side of the hippies but again it's like um you know uh just like the commentary in in solange about um you know women and them being able women being able to to have uh free will over their own bodies and reproductive rights uh or you know with don't torture a duckling it's the difference between you know the new you know the the new age thinking versus the superstitious thinking and and the church mm-hmm. and you know so um it's hard to know if the filmmakers are on one particular side or another or if they're just presenting the conflict in their film just to bring attention to it you know yeah hmm. i think it's interesting though that it was a professor who discovered this music and i don't think they ever got into how exactly professor stone came into possession of the only copy of this music (laughs) um absolutely and yeah i don't apparently if he was the only one that owned it had nobody else in all those centuries since the saxony composer or Saxon composer wrote it. <laughs> Nobody thought, oh, holy shit, that is Arabic. I wonder what it says. <laughs> or it's a very dangerous composition. We should, you know, put it in a yeah. museum somewhere so it doesn't hurt anyone. You know, there's only one copy of it. The other music professor doesn't know anything about it, but he'll tell you about five <laughs> minutes worth of shit about it. <laughs> and he knows where you can find the one and only um, copy. Of right. It. The one and only copy is at this address. And, <laughs> oh, by the way, there's some Arabic. I mean, to me, that would be the most interesting thing about it. Yeah. I went to uh, the Hard Rock Cafe in Washington, D.C. when it first opened. And this was, um, I guess, like 89, 88, some. Back before every town with three traffic lights had its own hard rock cafe, you know? Yeah. Yep. And on the wall, they had this napkin that Jimi Hendrix had written some song lyrics on. And it was really <laughs> amazing because Jimi Hendrix's uh, handwriting was as trippy as his guitar playing. I mean, it was just <laughs> gorgeous. Weird, but very idiosyncratic and, you know. But I would have noticed looking at that napkin with the Jimi Hendrix lyrics if there were some Chinese characters scribbled across the bottom. Right. And uh, (laughs) there's only one copy of that napkin. And uh, (laughs) it's at the Hard Rock Cafe in Washington, D.C. Does it have any other languages written on it? Who knows? I don't know. (laughs) Drop some acid and... Wipe your mouth with the napkin and see what happens. There you go. You're right. <laughs> well, definitely far fetched for sure. And it, and you know, the other thing that I that is interesting to note about the end of the film is that it really comes to an abrupt end, just as much as it was an abrupt beginning. We don't mm-hmm. have any like epilogue with Harry and and hell or i'm sorry with uh with richard and helen um 
it's you know it just kind of ends with the cop saying what he says at the end and we're done and uh yeah we see that um a lot in uh giallo films too i think you know it's um every once in a while they they do kind of uh extend the film so that the surviving characters have a little bit more of a story to tell before it's over. But a lot of times it's like either the killer has been revealed and then he dies or Uh uh, the killer has been revealed and he gets caught. And that's pretty much it. Um, the, The movie typically ends as soon as the killer has been unmasked and, uh, and and either taken care of or you know, arrested or, or or killed in some way. So yeah, that's cool. That kind of reminds me of a lot of the Hammer films. When the monster dies at the end, is like immediately that's it. Monster dead. Movie over. Hmm. Yeah. And that is basically what happened here. Yeah. And it happens, like I said, it happens a lot in Jalo films, for sure. Yeah, yeah. So, um, all right, final impressions on this. Did you like it? Didn't like it? I did like it. Um, one, I don't, I'm not a big fan of the '60s hippie, groovy dance party type stuff that you see a lot in movies around this time. I'm kind of glad I missed the 60s completely, to be <laughs> honest. But um, it didn't bother me that much, especially on the second watch. The first watch, it was you know, all those mouse hole scenes were kind of a drag. But the yeah. second time I watched it, I started noticing uh, little things like uh, like Richard's eyeshadow, <laughs> right? Which sent me yeah, this right. little <clears throat> trip. Um. One of the other things I noticed that uh, I didn't mention when you were discussing that scene because you were on a roll. Um, okay, where um, Richard leaves and uh, he gets uh, surrounded by Boris and his friends. Right, he goes to talk to Loco and Loco says, uh, Boris killed your sister right and uh if you want proof go get it you know whatever so he leaves and he's surrounded as soon as he walks out of there onto the street there's a sound of a wolf howl did you notice that Mm, no it's a wolf howl followed by dogs barking but it's Hmm. unmistakably a wolf howl and the second time I watched this, I was thinking, why the hell would there be a wolf howl in a non-werewolf movie in London? Okay. Right. And then um, the guy who is with Loco at the slot car race, uh, the kind of blonde guy with the black turtleneck and uh, some kind of jeweled necklace around his neck. Right. He steps out of the shadows, and I thought, probably because the wolf howl was still kind of fresh in my mind. The way he stepped out of the shadows kind of reminded me of a vampire movie. Okay. Then later, when Richard starts punching Boris and Boris 
falls back against a wall. There's a Dracula poster, bigger than shit, right there on the wall. Huh. So I'm thinking, okay, Wolf Howl, the guy coming, stepping out of the shadows. Boris is from Romania, which is where Transylvania is. Right. And is it a coincidence that, you know, a wolf howled right when they were filming that scene and there just happened to be a Dracula poster on the wall? Yeah, that is. Um, <clears throat> and the way they seems... kind of beat you over the head with Boris. Oh, the Romanian, the Romanian, the Romanian. Right. <laughs> it would have been cool if somebody said, oh, the Transylvanian. <laughs> well, but. and okay, but so that makes that makes me think that maybe if these things were done on purpose. <clears throat> mm-hmm. And we're at the point in the film where we still don't know really what's going on. And you and I are, are kind of um, at an advantage because we know that this has been touted as a Jalo film. So mm-hmm. we don't expect that the answer to who killed Catherine is Dracula or that Boris is really a vampire. You know, but like, but maybe the filmmakers were throwing those things into the film on purpose to make you think that maybe there is some sort of supernatural thing going on here that's more than just psychedelics and and piano music you know well i don't know uh maybe it wasn't an overt thing like they wanted you to think that boris might be a vampire because they didn't do anything else where like uh he walks past a mirror and you don't see him in the reflection maybe I don't, know, I don't want to say it was subliminal, because when I think of subliminal manipulation in films, I think that kind of starts with The Exorcist, which was a few years later. But I think they lace these things in there, maybe just for their own amusement as filmmakers on a set. But maybe it subconsciously, sort of subliminally, affects the viewer. Yeah, because there is a wolf out, and there's no reason for there to be a wolf out in downtown right. London. Right. <laughs> and it didn't get on there by itself. And I don't think that Dracula poster just happened to be in the shot. I mean, if by any chance it was already on that wall, somebody purposely had him get be- punched up against that poster, and then when he steps right. away from it, you see it's. I mean, they saw right, what right, they were right. looking at when they were filming. And why is Boris from Romania? Why is he not from Poland or (laughs) Slovenia or Yugoslavia? You know, it doesn't really add up to much as far as the story goes. He's just some thug who uh, ended up jumping out of a window. And but cool little touches like that that uh, pop out after multiple viewings. Yeah. I find very interesting. Well, and you know, I think that uh, I would really like to see a cleaned up copy of this. I mean, I know that um, some people are of the disposition that, you know, these films kind of lose their um, their character um, when they get cleaned up for Blu-ray. And in certain cases, that's true. But this copy that i have 
it looks like 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 I said before, it looks like it's a VHS copy. Um, it's definitely um, the. I mean, it seems like it's the only copy out out available right now. Does um, it have a, a watermark down in the lower corner? Yeah, yeah. It says media set. Yeah, that's the one I got. That's the uh, media set is a collection of television channels here in Italy that is owned by Berlusconi, who okay. was the prime minister for a while. And uh, that logo above the word is for Italia Uno, which was one of the first non-state-run channels that I spoke about way back when. Right. Uh, it was Channel 6. And I think back then there were only six channels. The The state channels are Rai 1, 2, and 3. Okay. And then uh, Rete Quattro, which is Antenna 4. That was number 4. Uh, something Cinque was number 5. And even though their logos are number 1, it was on Channel 6 back in my day, back in uh, like 82, 83. Okay. So, so do you think that this is a copy that was originally pulled from a, a TV broadcast? Uh, well, yeah, apparently because Cause, I mean, I, I remember looking something up that said that there was a VHS release, but I, this could just be um, that somebody was able to circulate, you know, when this film was broadcast on Italian television, but would it be broadcast in English? Well, one thing I've noticed since we moved back over here in uh, 2010, on the uh, the broadcast TV channels, you have the option to change the language a lot of times. Oh, okay. Like, uh, I know Americans that come over here and all they watch is Italian TV with... I mean, there are entire channels that play nothing but American TV shows. And they'll turn on the TV, and then they just press a button, and it converts it, or it switches it to the English track. Right. Kind of like on a DVD or a Blu-ray. Gotcha. Um, yeah, the source I got for this says that it is a TV rip. Oh, okay. Which makes sense, because of the, the media set. Yep logo down on the bottom but that doesn't explain why the last couple sentences were in italian still <laughs> maybe the guy who ripped it from tv switched the language the last second <laughs> <laughs> well i got options for both on the yeah the version on your copy I, oh, okay yeah the one i found on my computer one morning <laughs> i can change it from uh yeah, because by default, when I open it up in VLC, it's in Italian. Oh, okay. And then I right-click and change audio to audio track two. And, uh, I was looking for subtitles, because there are some websites around that uh, you can find subtitles for all sorts of stuff. But I couldn't find subtitles anywhere. Yeah. But... Well, um, definitely a fun film. Uh, interesting. I think it didn't really drag very much. There was a lot of uh, 
there's a lot of different scenes to enjoy and to digest and the mystery was interesting um, enough to keep you kind of thinking about it. And like you said, on secondary and tertiary watches, um, there's more to enjoy about it than you may have noticed the first time going. Um, mm-hmm. So yeah, I, I definitely put it in my list of the ones from the proto period that, uh, that I come back to that I like, but I would, again, not to, to be uh, beat a dead horse, but I would really uh, like to see a, a cleaned up copy of this released um, sometime in the future. I mean, I don't know how these, these Blu-ray distribution, you know, companies or studios make decisions about what films to release because, you know, nobody is clamoring for any of them. Like, it's not like, you know, the entire population of the United States really, really, really wants to see my dear killer over um, any of these other films. So like, I, I don't know that it has anything to do with popular vote. It may have to do with, you know, what they get the rights to. And they just know that they're catering to an audience that will buy everything because, you know, it's a, it's a fringe uh, category of films and the people that are interested in these films want a copy of anything and everything that comes out, you know, um, but I'd really like to know, you know, how they decide, Hey, this is the new release we're going to put out. And, uh, cause like arrow has put out some stuff recently and I'm like, how did they decide that they were going to do a cleaned up Blu-ray of the French sex murders, which is a terrible film. Um, <laughs> I mean, it's awful, awful, awful. And like Barbara Boucher is in it for a few minutes. But other than that, you know, it doesn't really have much re- going for it, except for the fact that it's, you know, a giallo that takes place in France. And the main character kind of looks like Humphrey Bogart. And, um, you know, it's it's kind of dumb. But like for, you know, how much do you invest when you're a, a, a Blu-ray studio? in acquiring the rights to be able to reproduce this based on what you think people are going to pay for it and how much you're going to recoup from it. You know, like how many people really bought that French sex murders on Blu-ray? Right. Is it more than a hundred? I mean, how can it be more than a hundred? You know what I mean? Like (laughs) I have no idea. I know. um, I bought a couple of Paul Nashi Blu-rays that were released by Mondo Macabro as limited edition. Mm-hmm. And I think the limited edition run was only like a thousand. And after that, it goes, you know, the, the case changes from red to blue. And with the limited edition, you get the fat book with notes and pictures and stuff in it and a reversible cover in case you don't like the picture they chose for the front. Um, oh, yeah. And I'm thinking a limited edition of a 1,000, and those usually sell out pretty fast. And I'm thinking there are a 1,000 people on this planet that want to watch this weird Paul Nashy movie that maybe 0.0001% have ever <laughs> even heard of. Right, right. Um, I go to some of these sites like Arrow or Blue Underground or Mono Macabro Vinegar Syndrome, Synapse, uh, Shout Factory, and I'm kind of surprised at the stuff they find to put out yeah. in re-release. 
And half the time I'm like, holy shit, this is available. Oh my God, where's my credit card? Click, 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 you know? Yeah. And the other half of the time I'm like, who the fuck would want to watch that? <laughs> <laughs> Are you serious? That's well, I guess that's the business model. Like for every 10 people who would say, who the, who the fuck would want this? There's one guy that says, where's my credit card? So yeah, yeah, yeah. If you multiply that enough, you know, you're a moneymaker. And I guess if they spread themselves thin enough and they cover like a wide range of, of, of niche, um, you know, film, film categories that there's always going to be a few people that are, you know, collectors, like some people, you know, some people collect movies and not necessarily movies that they like. They collect movies because they collect them. Um, and they collect them on like tangible media instead of like, you know, I downloaded a file and, you know, I can watch it on my computer. Like they want to have the disc and that's, there's a lot of people like that. So I guess, you know, that's how these distribution places or these, these studios stay in business. So yeah, all this is to say that uh, I would really like to see a murder by music release um, sometime in the near future. And if anybody's listening that has any influence over that, then um you know, chalk two more votes up for us, I guess, you know, if that, if, if, <laughs> yeah. it, if it matters towards your bottom line that you got two more votes, but, um, so yeah, well, that's murder by music. Everybody, we, uh, did it. It's justice as we always do on the chow chow these days, um, by talking about it way more than it ever deserved to be talked about. <laughs> that's, uh, that's how we do things here. So I don't really know what's up for next. Um, I'm going to sit and think about it for a little while because uh, our next show will be 2023. Mm-hmm. I know that, um, you know, if we were to continue on with my original premise to cover as many proto Jolly as possible, um, there are definitely at least three or four left that are noteworthy enough to dedicate an episode to. Um, but we are, ladies and gentlemen, starting to... Uh, turn the corner and head towards the um, monumental episode number 100. Um, of course, if you, you need to do the math by counting the episodes between volumes one and two to know where we are. And off the top of my head, I can't do that. But I think, you know, we will be maybe 10 or maybe 11 episodes away from episode 100, which I consider to be an important one. I would like to try to solicit um matt as well as eric to sit in on that episode along with al and myself of course and um who knows what we will do um (laughs) we may do a clip show like they do with the sitcoms we'll we'll introduce clips from various episodes throughout the (laughs) 10 years that we did the podcast that would be horrible that would be so hard to put together that would take so long that would take a long time (laughs) <laughs> oh man but well, uh, let's see we had 71 episodes well you had 71 episodes before the uh the volume two right i think it ended with sweet body of deborah yep that's right and then i have and then this is episode yeah. 17 and if you yeah. count 
the episode zero that we did. The um, resurrection episode. Where Matt and I didn't really talk about anything specific. We'll call it an episode. <clears throat> that was... Mm-hmm. Um, uh, 18 plus 71 is uh, 88, 89. 88, 89. So, um, yeah, we're getting there. We're getting close. So um, I still, I know that we've talked about this a couple times, but I am holding off on watching or re-watching Bird with the Crystal Plumage because I really want to wait until we're doing, you know, we do a rewatch for the podcast um, and I've really exhausted all of the proto Jalo films so um yeah so uh everybody out there uh in facebook land uh everybody out there in podcast land if you're listening to us uh thanks for listening and if you want to get in touch with us we can be reached through the jalo chow chow volume 2 facebook group you can also email the podcast at jalo chow chow at gmail.com uh don't forget to go to i hate mattwall.com and my website, thejalloscore.com. If you have suggestions for films um, for us to do, please uh, drop us a line and let us know. And um, I guess that's it, Matt. Um, w- we will try to get Matt in next year, uh, hopefully, if his uh, life changes a little bit and his schedule is uh, conducive to him sitting in. That would be great. And uh, Al, um, wishing you a happy new year and good holidays and all of that good stuff. And uh, yeah, I guess that's it for us. Happy holidays to everybody or Buone Feste, as they say over here. All right. So love it. See you next year. All right. Well, until next time, everybody, which would be next year. Ciao, ciao. Ciao, ciao.